Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us is our other co-host. This is Drew. How's it going, in betweeners? Hey, hey, everyone. Today, we've got a special friend and, uh, and, and person that has uh, contributed to our podcast on several occasions. Uh, our, our good buddy, Justin Chuan. Say hello there. Hello there. That was a fantastic introduction. Thank you for that. Friend and person. I appreciate it. Yeah. Special uh, friend I, and person. I wanted to make sure that my that our listeners understood that you're not an inanimate object. He's so, not an android or a synthetic construct. He is a human being. Yes. He is not a chair that gained sentience and found a way to interact with us through dark magics. He is flesh and blood. And worthy of our love and attention. That's right. I, yeah, I think your listeners would appreciate the specificity there. Listen, talking chair. No. <laughs> um, Justin is... He, he works on another podcast that we've mentioned, uh, that we've worked with on, on several loose occasions here. He was with us on our Shang-Chi review. You want to give your organization a shout-out, Just? Yeah, the organization is We Are Half the World. That's WOW for short. Um, and we're an organization that uh, celebrates Asian American or Asian representation. Um, so we helped the community by promoting art and entertainment um, um, that, that that's produced from the community. Um, so please check us out on Instagram. Um, you can nice. search for W-A-H-W and we should be there. Nice. Nice. So seeing as how the last time we had Justin on, we were doing a review about Shang-Chi, Shang-Chi, you know, mm -hmm. uh, it only made sense that we would have him on again to discuss today's movie and topic, The Eternals. It's, I don't think it's a movie that's quite as obviously uh, centered around the Asian community as something like Shang-Chi was, but it definitely is. Uh, something that uplifts the Asian community, seeing as how it, it has the director Chloe Zhao attached to it and a pretty diverse cast. So uh, it only made sense that we would have him on to join us in our review and discussion of The Eternals. Technically, I think the movie is just called Eternals without the definite article. Technically, shut the hell up. <laughs> <laughs> It's going to be one of those episodes, people. It's going to be one of those kinds of episodes. Albert's feeling mighty combative tonight. <laughs> I just came from a UFC party, so I'm uh, I'm I'm hopped up on adrenaline. Well, it's a good thing we are recording this episode remotely, otherwise we might be in a fist fight right now. <laughs> Justin, who would win in a fight, Albert or Drew? <laughs> oh, that's a tough question. Um, let me think about it. I have All an right. answer. All right, we'll come Everyone back to would that. lose because <laughs> the fury of our battle would just destroy the world. We would be written about in in song and in legend for centuries to come. For wait, wait, hang on, dude. If if our battle would destroy the world, if it cracks the fundaments of the firmament of reality itself, who would be left alive to write about us? I'm I'm sure that whatever uh being crawls out of the primordial soup in the wake of the end of humanity will have felt the the power, the absolute power of our rage 
so mm-hmm. much that it would be the stuff of legend. So we would advance into legendary status. Exactly. But exactly. the downside is that no one would ever be able to hear new episodes of our podcast again. But what a note to go out on. That is true. That is true. <laughs> what were you about to say, Justin? Oh, I was going to say where a celestial could uh, spend like 10 minutes uh, of movie time for exposition and telling this story of uh, this great battle. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. That is certainly a storytelling technique that would work. All right. So we get so, started with our spoil-free discussion. Yeah, we can start off by just giving, you know, our general impressions of of the film, our our thoughts, you guys. Yeah, I can start. I guess I'll just keep it fairly brief, but to sum it up, I like this movie, man. I liked it quite a bit. I liked it a mm. lot. It was something that really entertained me and captured my attention the whole way through despite its long runtime. There wasn't a single point where I was checking my watch to try and figure out exactly how much movie was left. I was just pretty much enthralled and, you know, captivated by what was on the screen. I think we said this in our previous episode when we were discussing the Eternals comics. This movie was the one that I was most interested in for Mar- the, the MCU mo- movie that I was most interested in this year compared to uh, the other trailers that we had seen, you know, with, with Black Widow and Shang-Chi and Spider-Man. Like, this mm-hmm. was the one that, that I was most interested in, in watching. And maybe maybe I had higher expectations or, or maybe higher hopes for this movie. And I would say that it satisfied what I was hoping to see, man. Like, it, it definitely... Uh, it delivered. With me. Yeah, it delivered, man. I liked it a lot. Okay. Yeah, for me, it's it's definitely in the upper tier of the MCU films. How about you, Justin? What were your thoughts coming out of it, or just initial impressions? Yeah, I was talking to Drew about this um, last night, but my initial impressions was that it was a lot. There's a lot to to deal with, and I kind of alluded it to it um, in my earlier comment. There's a lot of exposition here, um, but I did appreciate the new direction um, that uh, Chloe Zhao was taking this uh, franchise into. Um, there was, um, let's say, like, I, I don't remember another Marvel movie. Well, I don't remember Marvel movies, at all, <laughs> but I, I don't think there, there was one that was so character-driven. Um, and it was, it was like a character study, basically. But the problem mm-hmm. for me was that there were a lot of characters and there is this whole mythology that needed to be explained. And though, you know, uh, Chloe Zhao is a incredibly talented director, I don't think any director could have um, made this movie work out the way that I wanted to. You know, it though it was like two and a half hours long, it still felt a little short um, to me, and it felt a little overstuffed. Mm, mm, mm. Interesting. I remember at the very end of our Shang-Chi episode, you gave a hot take on your feelings about Chloe Zhao. And you you basically said that you, you didn't really like her movies, her other movies. Yeah, that is, that is true. Um, yeah, so to reiterate what I said last time, I think 
um, a lot of the praise that she's getting is deserved. Um, she's exploring territories in filmmaking that um, not many filmmakers have explored before. Um, and uh, what she's doing is very novel, right? Um, mm -hmm. Asian-American woman um, exploring the, the Midwest, middle of America. Um, and, and it's super interesting the way she's telling those stories with um, non-actors mostly. Um, but I do think there there's a trade-off there there's a distraction with the the skill set of the actors and also her movies don't like they're the very meditative uh, narratives maybe not even narratives because some sometimes mm -hmm. those movies don't even have a plot and there's just mm -hmm. like a series of vignettes stitched together so you know there there is there's there's quite a big contrast between those movies and this one which there's like so much exposition, so much plot to be told. Um, and I thought that was that was really interesting. Huh. Oh. Mm -hmm. What did you think, Albert? Um, I enjoyed it quite a bit as well. And, uh, you know, to our listeners, I, I want to make I want to paint you guys a picture or, you know, just give you a little bit of detail uh, just to be clear. Um, Usually when, when we do one of these episodes, uh, me and Drew uh, will go check out one of these movies and then we'll discuss it after the fact. But this time due to scheduling conflicts, we actually saw it separately. So I ended up watching this thing on my own, um, you know, and it was. It was, uh, you know, I, I guess it was an experience in and of itself for me to watch it and just kind of process everything on my own uh and and to have that couple hours out even after the movie to like sit there and parcel out the various ideas and feelings and thoughts that i had about the movie uh after the fact because uh drew did end up watching it but his uh he ended up drew and justin watched it together but they watched it around. we watched it about two hours after you started your showing Exactly. So by the time I had gotten out of the theater, they were like maybe halfway through their viewing mm -hmm. of it. So I didn't really have the opportunity to like shoot Drew too many messages. I didn't really want to interrupt his viewing experience. Uh, but it did give me the time to just uh, sit with my thoughts. And, um, you know, I think the first thing that I told Drew was, I acknowledge that there were things about the movie that I thought were messy. Um, and I think when I say messy, it's pretty much in line with what some of the critics were saying in that there's there's definitely a lot of plot threads going on. It's a lot of information. But I do think, and this might be, this was a thought that I had um, after watching it, but, and... I think this might be a situation where as a person who's accustomed to reading comics, this made more sense to me in spite of uh, how busy mm -hmm. certain elements of the movie was. So, yeah. so I do, I do think, although I acknowledge that it's, it's, it's a pretty busy so I, I do acknowledge that aspects of it are busy or or that there are a lot there's a lot of information going on. I was pretty engrossed in the film 
and I was pretty caught up in the visual aspect of the movie as well as the the various character interactions that were going on. I was maybe there were a lot of characters, but in my viewing experience, I was engaged in all of their stories. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe some less than others, but I was engaged with with all of them nonetheless. I I never felt like I was overwhelmed by all the various characters that were going on. So that's that's my short take on 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 it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like all three of us have a generally overall positive outlook on the movie. And before we started recording this, we were talking about the general consensus and critic reviews. And I haven't really, I haven't read any critic reviews uh, from professionals or or even just, uh, you know, bloggers or, or anything like that. So I wasn't, I wasn't paying attention to it, to them before I watched the movie, because I knew I was going to watch it anyway. So I would just form my own opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it sounds like quite a few people don't really like this movie. So I was just wondering if you guys had any opinions about that. I, I actually think it's kind of weird. Like, I... Out of a morbid sense of curiosity, I did decide to. I checked into the the laziest uh, a review aggregator uh, just just to give myself a general idea of what what the masses or what the critics were thinking. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it's Rotten Tomatoes, and you know, what's easier than just giving you a a pretty stripped down percentile uh, percentage of who likes it and who doesn't like it, right? Uh-huh. So so going into it, I knew that the the critic reviews were pretty low on it. And I think I was concerned a little bit because in my mind, I was like you in that the trailer that the 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 bits and pieces in the trailers that we saw uh did a lot to instill a sense of interest and I guess confidence in in the movie itself mm-hmm. and to see that those numbers were that low I, I was really curious what what could have gone what could have happened and after watching it I'm I'm baffled I guess well not baffled but I I don't I still don't get it I don't get what they weren't getting um, and again this might be a thing where Although I, I'm not super uh, familiar with the Eternals, there's enough comics knowledge of the Eternals, and I have enough background with comics and reading comics that all those things that might have bothered the critics really didn't bother me at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It makes sense. What about you, Justin? I know uh, because you're a cinephile and probably read a lot more film criticism than Albert or I do. Uh, I was wondering what your thoughts on on their reviews were. Yeah, um, I thought it was pretty surprising as well. Uh, right now, the tomato meter is at 48%, which seems entirely unfair. Um, I thought that this, was, this movie was much better than that. Um, the audience score is at 81%, which um, seems about right. Um, but if you compare that to 
Metacritic, which is another review ad aggregator, the user score is 6.4. So I actually expected the user score to be lower than the critic score, just because this this movie drops out of like the traditional Mar MCU stuff, right? It, it mm -hmm. doesn't follow that same formula. And those expectations and what you get out of this movie uh, is a bit different. So I thought the audience score would be lower and the, maybe the, the critic score would be higher, but it turned out to be opposite, right? And I think what mm -hmm. critics are focusing on are um, kind of what I was talking about earlier. There's a lot of exposition. There's like some fatigue there. Um, but also um, they point out that it starts out refreshingly different. There's a whole new take, but it kind of devolves back into the Marvel formula, which I know that we can talk about a little bit more in detail. Um, I don't entirely agree with it, but there are some points in there that are valid. So mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we can get to that in the in the spoiler section. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. One one question, another question I have uh, for you, particularly Justin, because you don't read the comics as much as we do. I was wondering how you thought this movie worked as an introduction to the Eternals and the Celestials and the whole that whole concept and their mythology. Yeah, I think it was a it was an introduction. I I wouldn't say like it was like the per perfect one. I did understand everything that was going on. Um, I don't know if I was overwhelmed. I think it was more about um, not handling the exposition portions a little bit more elegantly, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think they just out of necessity of like how long the, the runtime was already at two and a half hours, they had to take some shortcuts. And I think... Um, those shortcuts uh, presented all this information in a way which was like, uh, like, give it a break or like, maybe um, trust us a little bit to understand things and not, you know, write, spell it out for us, right? So I think right. that there, there is this uh, tendency to hold the audience's hand, um, which I mean, makes makes sense because it's a huge audience, right? So. Um, but yeah, that that's my my thing about it. But overall, I, I thought it was perfectly fine. Um, it got the information that uh, was needed to set the universe up and all that. So, yeah. Did it interest you enough to make you want to see a sequel movie? Um, no, that's an interesting question. I think. Yeah, I don't know. I I don't know. <laughs> I really don't. Uh, <laughs> Get the hell off our show. <laughs> Albert's feeling really aggressive tonight. <laughs> uh, but I, I'd like to echo the sentiment around like the visual design of it. I thought it was like really great though some of the execution wasn't perfect you still get some like you know the cheesy visual effects that uh a lot of marvel movies have uh, but i thought like the design was amazing i loved mm -hmm. it yeah yeah absolutely 
did you guys have any thoughts on this movie in terms of how it fits in as the latest installment of the wider Marvel Cinematic Universe? Um, that's another interesting question, because watching this film, it, it definitely introduces a lot of elements that weren't present, not really in the Marvel Cinematic Universe before. Like, I think there were allusions to certain things, things like the Celestials or whatever. Like, we've seen them just in very small pieces in other films, but... Mm-hmm. This was the first of the Marvel Cinematic films that really addressed them as their own entity. Um, I don't, I don't know, uh, you know, so having watched all of the streaming shows, or if not all, most of the streaming shows and uh, the other Marvel movies that have come out recently, and having some general idea of the direction that the Marvel Cinematic Universe seems to be going in. Uh, mm-hmm. As of right now, I'd say it almost feels like the the things that they introduced in this movie are running on a parallel track that has yet to intersect with all of the things that they've introduced in the main Marvel Cinematic Universe. Mm-hmm. So it'd be interesting to see how... Or and if they are going to make all these various uh, story elements uh, com- uh, collide or combine with each other, you know, like it, it's. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to see what the final product is going to look like because, um, yeah, in 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 past Marvel cinematic films, usually the things that they hint at have some sort of connection to to things that they've already introduced and and this movie does do a little bit of that but it's very minor in comparison it feels very minor in comparison to other films that we've seen in the past Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah what about you yeah. i find it interesting too because this movie with the introduction of all these cosmic elements that we don't I guess we've seen a good amount of cosmic elements in the Guardians movies and the last two Avengers movies and and the Thor movies. But I think uh, having this deeper and greater mythology as the foundation of this big ensemble cast, it's starting to make, to me, it, it makes me think that the MCU is starting to get pretty crowded in a sense you know like it's almost like if they're gonna continue developing this property with future sequels or maybe even spin-offs where you'll have the different eternals showing up in different movies it's really aping that comic book structure now where we have so many different characters intersecting with each other uh crossing over so to speak mm. And in a way, I could I could see this as like the first step in the MCU becoming more and more convoluted. <laughs> yeah. When you introduce the Celestials and and the all the mythology uh, related to to them and how they had a role in the creation of of all the planets and and 
galaxies and whatnot. It's it's it kind of makes the the MCU feel like there's this undercurrent of events that has never been introduced before until this movie. And that's kind of the thing that we see in actual superhero comics all the time, where things start out small and then different writers come up with their own ideas and just graft them on to the existing overall story. And the more you do that, the more convoluted the universe becomes. Yeah. And as as time progresses, it's it just gets more and more convoluted. And I, you know, I personally don't mind that. It that's just part of the the charm of corporate cape comics. Mm-hmm. But I, I, it does make me wonder if in the future we're going to get to a point where people are going to be either confused or disinterested. Like, I still wonder about the Marvel Cinematic Universe freight train, you know? Like, it, I thought people would have been burned out by now, but it seems like the movies still sell a lot of tickets considering the pandemic and everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering, when is it going to fall apart? Like, is is it ever going to reach a point where they're, the people that are making these movies are going to decide uh, we should just simplify things and, and start over? Because it's well, fascinating to me to see the the MCU with the Disney shows and these movies. They're just it's constantly just adding. They're constantly adding more and more yeah. things, just like how comics do it, you know. So yeah. I'm, I'm fascinated by that. I was gonna say one could argue that on the DC slash Warner Brothers side, they've already started over several times. That's just kind of their formula at this point. <laughs> yeah, that's true, and I don't think yeah. it's working well for them. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I I don't know how their their uh, ticket sales are doing or financially mm-hmm. how their success is, but certainly on an artistic level, they pale in comparison. I would kind of I would go so far as to say that the way that their films are being made that mimics the way that they've done their comics in the sense that. There have been so many reboots in their films at this point mm. that that it kind of almost feels like second or it almost feels like it's obvious that that's what they would do because that's how they've been doing their comics for for years now. That's true. DC is all about the multiverse. Yeah, and, and it's all about continuity reboots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. It's it's interesting to see that, that applied to the movies as well, you know? Because mm-hmm. I think for the longest time, the uh, the sense at Marvel was, and, and I'm talking about the comics, not the movies, mm-hmm. but for the longest time, uh, the idea at Marvel was like, oh yeah, we got it right the first time around. That's why we can continue to have our universe without having... Uh, you know, universal multiversal shakeups that you know de-ages everyone fifteen years or twenty years or whatever. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's a good point. You guys ready to go into a spoiler-filled discussion? Let's do it. Justin. All right. So for all our yeah. listeners, yeah, for all our listeners, we will 
now go uh, deep into spoilers. So hopefully you have watched the movie already. We're just going to dive right into it. So one of the things that uh, we mentioned earlier was how this is Chloe Zhao's first foray into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I was going to ask you guys, well, particularly Justin, because I know you've watched her movies, but what did you think of her direction in Eternals? Like, did is this a movie that reflected the hallmarks that you're accustomed to in terms of her directorial style? Um, yes and no, right? Like, I think there was this... Uh tug of war between the mandates that the MCU wants every movie to have Mm -hmm. um, and also uh, Chloe Zhao's vision um, which is focused on like I said before character study family drama um, and I, I think you'd certainly get those you know aesthetic shots that we were talking about earlier with like you know, a couple standing on the beach with a backlit um, during golden hour, like that's that's all Chloe. Um, but mm-hmm. I think for the most part, I wouldn't say that um, this felt like a movie that that was like her other movies, like her filmography, you know, the three other movies that she's done. Um, it, was, it was a big departure for both the MCU and for Chloe's house films. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you seen any of her movies, Albert? I haven't. I mean, I I know she did Nomadland, and I I have an interest in watching that. It's definitely on my list to check out. It's it's the kind of story that's right up my alley. I just need to make time for it. So, um, like Nomadland was the first thing that I had where I had even gained any uh, awareness of her as a director. So mm-hmm. she's completely unfamiliar to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually watched Nomadland for the first time a few days ago, just earlier this week, kind of to prime myself for Eternals. And yeah, like Justin was saying, that the only real uh, similarity that I, I could detect was the... Her, just I guess the style of cinematography, like she really does love really beautiful shots of the horizon and panoramic panoramic scenes of of uh, nature and and the just the beauty of the natural world I, I suppose is how I would say um, and like we see some pretty nice looking shots in Eternals as well, but it still felt like a Marvel movie. Like if you didn't tell me that the director of Nomadland directed this movie, there's no way I would have been able to guess at that, you know, like this still, like the style of it still feels pretty similar to a Marvel movie, even though I I think it does break out of the formula in terms of the story structure. For some reason, I, I guess just the way that, just the overall tone and, and feel of it um, from a visual standpoint still reminds me of almost any other Marvel uh, Marvel movie. One mm. thing, though, that I, I did notice was that 
a big part of this movie was set in South Dakota, and I feel like that's definitely her hallmark. Like she loves South the, Dakota. Yeah, she <laughs> loves the Midwest and and those kind of uh, more rural areas and and landscapes. Mm. So mm. yeah, that was yeah, I thought that was an interesting story decision to have the the leader of the Eternals decide to seclude herself or or settle herself in in that part of the world the american what midwest if, what if she had just finished nomadland and it just turns out that all of her filming equipment and gear was still in south dakota so she just decided we should film part of this movie in south dakota that would make sense man i, I would actually <laughs> believe that because i think she did filmed this movie pretty shortly after uh nomadland right i don't know if she was she stayed there though but i would love I don't know, that maybe, maybe she just likes it there <laughs> she might have It'd a special be, affinity for it i don't know there's there's something about that that makes me chuckle the idea <laughs> that she did it purely out of pragmatism convenience <laughs> yeah i didn't want to move all my stuff to another state so that i'd have to film and set up a whole new thing so i'm just gonna do what i do right here because we're like 50% set up already. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be hilarious. The funny thing is, is that even though so much of the the everyday kind of scenes were beautifully shot and were really, you know, just visually striking, I thought the the action sequences in particular, that... that really betrays the marvel dna you know like the action scenes all looked like your typical marvel house style of yeah action movie a mm. lot of a lot of cg creatures with uh, you know the spectacle and the bombastic action but the other strange thing was that one of the biggest action scenes the one that takes place i think it was were they in the amazon when they meet yeah druig and his people yeah there's a pretty long action scene there that takes place at like twilight and the lighting there was kind of strange because it I felt like it was hard to completely discern yeah. everything that was going on because of the dimness of the of the lighting. Yeah. That scene jumped I, out at yeah. me too. Yeah. It made me think of the one the final scene in Black Panther where Killmonger and uh T'Challa were fighting it out in the tunnel. Mm -hmm. And all I remember thinking like, although I, I liked a lot of the movie, that one scene in particular jumped out at me. And I just remember thinking to myself, they got to just stop shooting fight scenes at night. They like, yeah, you know, this is not I, I don't know who thinks this is uh, visually acceptable, but it's I get it. Like fights do happen at night, but this I don't know. It, it just didn't feel like a, a a satisfactory viewing experience mm -hmm. yeah what about you just what'd you think of that scene um yeah i agree i think it's interesting that i think the criticism for action scenes in marvel movies is that uh they're very desaturated the environment lacks color um and the amazon scenes certainly kind of uh repeat that pattern but i do think that uh certain environments like babylon or um 
that that Bollywood uh, mm-hmm. I'm seeing. Um, there, there's lots of instances where there's a lot of color in there. Yeah, uh, which which uh, contrasts from both Marvel movies and Chloe Zhao's movies, right? Because yeah, um, yeah, I, I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, since we were talking about hallmarks of Chloe Zhao's films, I also wanted to get into the writing too. Uh, because mm-hmm. I think one of the tendencies that uh, Chloe Zhao has in her movies is to just hammer on the theme over and over again. Um, so, for instance, in The Writer, which I know you haven't seen, but it was a story about uh, 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 this writer who would ride horses. Uh, he got into a horrific accident and um, was... Um, uh, recommended by doctors medical professionals like no you can't write again he was really stubborn he wanted to keep writing because that's the thing that he was passionate about that's his life that's the thing that he was most in love with so he couldn't let go but one of the conditions of his injuries was that he couldn't actually let go with his hand um so uh when he would hold something he had a hard time like um unclenching his fist right Um, so after he he clenched his fist, it, it would just be stuck there. Um, so you know, though that that might have been like a uh, uh, something inspired by real life events, because um, this story was basically based on the the actor's real life. Um, I think that there's there's this like on the nose connection and theme that gets hammered in over and over again, and I think that's the same. That stays true for this movie as well with Eternals because I, I believe Chloe Zhao co-wrote this movie and yeah, the theme it. of like um, sacrifice gets hammered in over and over again, right? So mm-hmm. you have um, this premise where uh, you have the apex predator, which is uh, which are humans, right? And um, they have to. Uh, eliminate threats um, in order for their lives to flourish. Um, and that theme is uh, repeated in the ce- celestial mythology um, where, you know, they have to uh, place seeds in these planets and these beings emerge, destroying the planet, but these beings create more life. Um, you have this theme with each of the inter- eternal, maybe not each of them, but for a lot of them, they have to sacrifice certain things. So Icarus has to sacrifice love to complete the message, um, the mission, um, and that kind of mm-hmm. parallels with what uh, Ajax, Ajax arc is too. Um, Sprite has to sacrifice her immortality in order to live a human life, um, and so on and so forth. It, keep, it keeps on going and going. Um, so I think. For better, for worse, uh, that's one of the hallmarks of Chloe Zhao's movies is to keep harping on the theme throughout the film. So do you think that in Eternals, going back to the specific example you just shared of sacrifice, do you think that all of those examples you gave were, did that make it a little too ham-fisted or is that something that you think is acceptable within the bounds of storytelling? You know, just being able to communicate the message through each character, like, and, and their different 
little arcs. Um, I don't think it was ham-fisted. I think it was it was it was appropriate, and I appreciate the justification for uh, for you know revisiting this theme with uh, different takes for each of these characters. I think that was crafted really well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I do think like going back to my original comment that there's just like so much of it um, condensed in this two and a half hour movie. What would have been great for me. Uh, was if this was like a Disney Plus series that spanned like at least six episodes, you know? Um, mm. I think that that would have been like the perfect medium for the story. Mm-hmm. I hadn't considered that, but that's actually, I think that could work. I mean, I, I still liked the movie and I thought it, for me personally, it worked, but I could see a version of it that's a you know, a six-episode miniseries that could work as well, you know? Um, Yeah, yeah. Sure, yes. I think theoretically uh, a TV series version of this would certainly work because one of the things I did like about this movie was that it was more of a slow burner. Like, it wasn't something that was just trying to rush characters off to the next set piece and then yeah uh, you know over and over until they get to the biggest set piece of all and have a battle against a cgi army yeah yeah of creatures or, or whatever the case may be yeah so that that's one thing that i really did appreciate about eternals it, it just didn't feel quite as formulaic as the other movies as the other marvel yeah. movies yeah and I, I like that it had that slower and more deliberate pacing and uh you know it was more character focused and and character driven yeah not yeah i like being able to think about examining the themes of the story through the different characters various arcs right i I think that's that's the kind of symmetry that i personally generally appreciate in in stories yeah, and it wasn't it wasn't done in I didn't think it was done in a heavy handed manner. It, it just felt like everything in the story was done in service to or everything that the characters uh, experienced was done in service of the story and the story's themes. Yeah. And if I could add to that, I wanted to say that one of the things that. And I could be mistaken about this, but. One of the things that that added to what made this feel different than other Marvel films was um, it was a story that jumps back and forth within their own timeline. Like mm-hmm. now that I think about it, it that that does happen in like you know Infinity War uh, or or Endgame, but um, there's something there's something about the fact that these characters were so long lived. And that we got to see their, we got to say see who they were and how they lived over through millennia. these, uh, yeah, over millennia through these different various flashbacks, right? So yeah, that I thought that was a good use of that uh, that technique or that device, I guess, because yeah, again, I I haven't read too many Eternals comics uh, except for that Neil Gaiman one, but. For characters like the Eternals, 
it makes sense, you know? I mean, we've had other characters in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, like Thor, who are, who's supposed to be this long-lived god, but they didn't even really use that technique to to look at what Thor's life would have, have been life like over the course of centuries, or if not eons, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so for them to apply that to these Eternals, like, I think that's a good way of just showing... How we get they, to see the characters in different contexts exactly, through the flashbacks. Exactly, and it's it also provides the context of their development over time. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Things like I, I I I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing the name right, but Faustus is one example that jumps out at me, where he's he he comes to the planet and he's he's kind of the the engineer and the thinker of the group, and when he comes in the early years of his existence on earth, his whole thing is we should be providing mankind with the tools to like advance themselves. That's, you know, how else would we help them? What, what better way to help them? And there's a scene later on in the movie where he's at Hiroshima after the bomb has dropped, you know, during mm-hmm. world war two. And he's just devastated by what mankind has done to themselves. And mm-hmm. It messes them up, you know? Yeah. You know, it's stuff like that where, like, I again, I, I get it. A lot of characters in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, they lead these lives. But I, I think that's the type of thing that's uniquely suited to the Eternals is that them being such long-lived characters, you can see just how that wears on them over time, you know, how it affects mm-hmm. them over, mm-hmm. over centuries and eons. And uh, that's, that's just not, it's a very unique perspective that you don't really get with too many other characters. And I, I think it's uniquely suited to the Eternals. And I think it's a perspective that works very well. Yeah. I, I agree with uh, what you're saying, but can we talk about that one scene a little bit? I, like since it was brought up, I can't let it go. I thought that yeah. was a little bit weird. Um, to like so, Faustus is uh, the first, I believe, um, uh, openly queer character of color that is a superhero in the Marvel universe, um, and he. In this scene, he takes responsibility for one of the most tragic, most uh, horrific things mankind did to other humans, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was like very strange, and uh, I think it could be interpreted as offensive to um, some people. Um, that that I, I'm sure the U.S. military would appreciate it for sure. But um, I think that 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 was weird. <laughs> Is it because they're using this fictional superhero character to and inject inter, inter injecting him into a real historical event? Is that the strange part of it? Yeah, I don't think there was like malicious intent, although maybe there there might be. Um, but yeah, I think it it was uh, put there to to serve uh, the purpose of like a 
being uh, Faustus's arc, right? So um, he he had this, like Albert was saying, he had this intention to advance civilization with technology, but um, there's this existential question of mankind actually deserves it. And from that scene, um, I guess he uh, he uh, concluded that no, and he was kind of struggling with that. So I think that was the main purpose of the scene. But I do think that there is this, if you take a step out of the scene, a step out of the movie and um, examine it from uh, a wider perspective, that, uh, that that was pretty strange. That's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. It- it's something where with, if we didn't have the distance of so many decades separating us from the event, it would definitely feel even more awkward relating some kind of real life event or historical event into this fantastical superhero story. Like if they had done something like that, but made it 9-11 instead, I mean, that would right. have been even more awkward or strange exactly did that cross your mind at all albert that that element of the world war ii scene um it didn't i guess it's something that's very specific to uh hiroshima as as just of, well, I mean, Hiroshima, the bombing of Hiroshima was a very specific event. So mm-hmm. I think the way I view it is I've seen a lot of movies or shows that use World War Two, which was a real event as a, uh, you know, as a as a backdrop for whatever fictional story they're telling. And it just didn't occur to me that that specific event was. Uh, something that would conflict with my my viewing of of that Mm -hmm. scene um you know but now that you mention it like i get it uh yeah i i acknowledge that if uh you know if if individuals take um you know have have issue with that particular moment in the story uh I, I'd i understand it. It's not, you know, I, there's nothing really much that I can, that I would say to, like, you know, refute that or anything. It's 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 understandable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. But, um, yeah. What, what were you going to say, Drew? Oh, I was just going to ask if either of you guys had any more thoughts or things to say about the overall direction and writing of the movie? Yeah, I, th- I think I have quite a bit. Um, I do think uh, there were things about the the story that. So when I first watched the the movie, there were there were there were bits and pieces of it that I guess confused me a little bit just because it felt like their characters had from time to time would have or take stances that would conflict with stances that they would take just earlier on 
or with mm-hmm. you know even their behaviors and actions. So I can't think of too many right now, but though like the one thing that jumps out at me is like um, Kumail Kumail Nanjali's character. I I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right. Uh, you know, there's there's a scene where he, you know, he he seems to have the hardest uh, a hard time joining the Eternals at first. You know, because he doesn't want the to. I forget exactly why he doesn't want to join at first, but you know, uh, the the people in his film in the movie that he's making convince him that he should, for their sake, for the sake of life, that he should join the rest of their the Eternals on their quest to mm-hmm. stop the Deviants, right? Mm-hmm. And then, so he joins them, but then once we get to the end and it's revealed, spoiler, that uh, Icarus is the villain he there's a scene where he's talking and he's he's the one who brings his uh what's the term like valet is that Mm -hmm. what that guy was he brings his valet with him and you know he he talks about how much he trusts this guy and he talks about like how much he like he trusts this guy so much that he's even revealed to him that he's this immortal eternal right but in that moment when he finds out that um that what's his name that uh Icarus is is has betrayed the team like his whole thing is uh what does he say he says something to the effect of like I'm still on his side and he even though he has this person that he 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 values right Mm -hmm. and it was weird it was hard for me to reconcile that at first um but like upon thinking about it a little bit, I I don't know. I, I thought it was I, I don't know if they were intentionally doing this, but I'll, I I want to say that okay, so I'm gonna deviate a little bit. So one of the lines that they repeated a couple of times throughout the course of the movie was the Eternals would talk about themselves as a family. Right. And I don't necessarily feel like that's the way to look at the Eternals because out of all the movies where, you know, families uh, or even out of the Marvel movies where family is, you know, kind of the 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 underlying subject matter. Like. I don't think that that's something that applies to the Eternals specifically, if anything, if they are a family, they're supposed to be, or they should be, a dysfunctional family, you know. Uh-huh. And that's, I think, that's what works best. But I was gonna say, upon thinking about it, upon thinking of like how their behaviors are, um, I don't know if they did it on purpose, but I think when I think about what they were trying to do with the Eternals, um. I want to say that they were so if if all these characters were archetypes of pre-existing like Greek gods and and beings, mythological characters, um if they took that and they were trying to create a modern version of that or if they we we discussed this in our last episode where, you know, um the underlying idea was that what if you know the gods of the old world existed but they were 
actually alien beings or whatever, right? Right. So if we were to take that idea and apply it to the Eternals, then if we looked at something like the Greek gods or the Norse gods or whatever, like I think a lot of uh, modern interpretations of deities tend to look at them as beings that are uh, better than your average person, right? Beings that mm -hmm. are above reproach, beings that we look to uh, for moral guidance and uh, example, right? Mm -hmm. But if they applied the idea of the old Greek gods and the old uh, Norse gods or like the, just the old world gods to these Eternals, right? You know, because if you look at their names, they're all based or similar to, to some existing version of an older god. Um, then it kind of makes sense that they're these wishy-washy, almost manic kind of characters, right? Because... If you look at those old uh, old stories, a lot of them were super petty and super conceited. Like it it wasn't wouldn't be your idea or what our modern conception of what a quote unquote god is, right? So, mm -hmm. so with that context, watching the movie, it just kind of made me think like maybe that's why. Like, I kind of wish they had leaned into that a little more if that is what they had intended to do. Because, you know, someone... I, I think if they didn't do it, it might have been because they wanted... They still wanted these characters to be likable, for the most part. But, mm -hmm. you know, like, even someone like like Kumail Nanjali's character, I forgot what his... Kingo. Actual, King, yeah, Kingo's character. Like, the fact that he's kind of self-absorbed, you know? Um, yeah. And, yeah, the the idea that Icarus could be so, uh, so not prideful, but so focused on his mission that he, he, like, disregards the life of people to that level, to, to that degree, right? Mm -hmm. It, yeah, I thought it all, maybe, maybe I'm bending over backwards to try to make it make sense to myself, but... There was something about that that fascinated me in my viewing of it. I don't know if you got that same impression or not, or if the thought ever crossed your mind. For me, I think when uh, I saw Kingo walk out on the rest of the team, on the rest of the Eternals, I, f I think he said something to the effect of, I can't harm or attack my own family so i'm just gonna stay out of it like i felt like that was the reason why he chose to disengage himself from the situation entirely even mm. though uh, you know it, it meant that icarus was still gonna fight the rest of them mm. but, but he he even though on some level he agreed with icarus he wasn't gonna take up he wasn't gonna attack the rest of them because he still considered them his family yeah so I, I don't know if that makes any difference um to how you read that scene i well i that was just one example but i just meant in general there was there were a lot of scenes where i guess they were just more i don't know 
simple. Yeah. I was doing like an audit of all the the characters in my head and like uh more what? Oh, sorry. I was saying that I was I was going through all the character arcs in my head and trying he to He said see he was like... doing an audit, Albert. <laughs> Is that what he said? <laughs> yeah. I, I did. Uh. Yeah. Um but I think aside from like Makari and um, Angelina, Angelina Jolie's character, everybody had like their motivation. And for Kingo, I I had a similar di- similar difficulty in trying to figure out like what his motivation was, right? Because he yeah. was enamored with uh, this part of humanity where you know it was very, like fame, uh, arts, um, entertainment, something that we can you know all relate to. And yeah. um, by the end, when he was just like skipping out on the rest of the team, I yeah. think he said he said I I think it was more about like him feeling that fighting was futile, right? Because Icarus yeah. is like so much more powerful. I think he said that we're we're just mm-hmm. outmatched or something like that. Um, yeah, I I had a hard time figuring out like what his deal was, and yeah. um. It didn't really make sense to me because it seemed like he he'd gone this far. <laughs> exactly, and and uh, he had this valet with him that it seemed like he his best friend. Supposedly cares about yeah. yeah cares I mean, about his valet him. idolized him. He yeah. cares. He cares about the film crew. He cares about uh, being a figure and and you know in this industry about the. The, the entertainment that he provides the world, whatever. Yeah. But then he's all he's just like willing to throw that away without a fight or anything like that. Um and, and then yeah. you can make the argument that he's like, oh, I just want to go back to just thinking about like being famous and filmmaking and all that stuff. But if the world dies, what difference does but that make? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. The world is is gonna end in a day or less. And he's like, yeah, I'm just gonna I'm gonna split. Yeah. So, yeah. So yeah, I didn't I didn't get his whole motivation. Yeah. I I thought it was because he just didn't want to raise a hand against his fellow Eternals. Um yeah, I'd have to rewatch that scene, but I I felt like there was a lot of different reasons going on and it it mm-hmm. it wasn't abundantly clear to me in my in that moment. Like okay. I, like I walked away feeling like his whole thing was uh, the the specific line, and uh, I'm I'm not I don't remember it verbatim, but he did say something to the effect of I agree with him, I agree with Akari, Akari. and Icarus, it, Icarus, yeah, and it it struck me in that moment because I was like, then what are you doing here, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know, so I'd have to it's. It's it's something that I'd yeah it's something I'd pay closer to attention to if I was to watch it again. But I do think that Justin's right in that like it's clear that they all had these different arcs, and mm-hmm. I I still think that I wish they had leaned into it more uh, in in the sense that each of the characters were a little I. I don't necessarily want them to be as dysfunctional as a Garth Ennis character or a Mark Miller character, <laughs> but I do wish they had made it a little more abundantly clear that, 
you know, for beings that were long lived and that were gods that, or, you know, that, that mortals viewed as gods, uh, for, for their entire time on the planet, I wish that they had been just a little more manic or a little more damaged or detached from, uh, humanity, you know? Uh, like, mm-hmm. I guess Icarus is really the Icarus. only one of them who's truly detached. Yeah, exactly, exactly, totally. Yeah, you know, I but... saw somewhere online. Uh, I think it was on Twitter. I saw someone uh, quote from an interview that Chloe Zhao gave, and I, I didn't like verify or read the interview, so I, you got to take this with a grain of salt. But I read that, according to that tweet, uh, the interviews in the interview, Chloe Zhao said that in crafting the character of Icarus, she was heavily inspired by Zack Snyder's Man of Steel. No way. Yeah. Are you serious? <laughs> That's what I read. Again, I'm saying take it with a grain of salt. Maybe uh, you know, after this, you can go online and and try to look it up. Uh, I feel like I'm gonna have interview. to. Yeah. <laughs> but that that's a strange yet fascinating point of reference i think but at the same time it kind of makes a certain amount of it. sense yeah i can right? see it because mm-hmm. if if she wants her version of okay if her, her version of icarus is supposed to be just a detached insane superman that's what he was <laughs> You know, yeah, someone yeah. who just saw human beings as little more than a a pet or ants. Yeah, <laughs> that is that is what he was. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Um, that's something I'm gonna have to look up. Mm-hmm. But how corny was his uh his death scene flying into the sun? I, I do that was... think that that. That that part perplexed me a little. I I don't necessarily know that I wanted or needed him to commit suicide. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was it was just like oh, okay, we gotta well, do something with he, the sun. Yeah. It's Icarus. Okay, well, the thing is, when he flew off into space, I was like, oh, I guess he's leaving them because he's ashamed of what he did. And I was like, that's okay. exactly what I thought too. I thought he was just leaving the planet. And then he flew into the sun. I was like, wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) That's like, that'd be like if I was watching someone and we were like, you know, having a conversation and the dude like walked into the water and I was like, oh, he's gonna, he's gonna cool his feet by, you know, taking his shoes off and walking into the, into the ocean. But he just kept on walking. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Little weird. He, maybe he just felt like there was no more reason for him to live. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I guess so. Cuz if I guess if you look at it from his perspective, his entire existence was predicated on serving Arashem and making sure that the baby celestial would be born. Yeah. And yeah. when that baby celestial was aborted, he had no more reason to exist. Like his entire function for existence and his reason to to live was over and there wasn't any real way for him to i mean after everything that he did do you think 
he could just, uh, you know, try and make up with the rest of the Eternals. So without his family, who had, you know, all turned against him, basically, and without his purpose, I guess that was enough to drive him to suicide. But I agree with you. I, I think it, I would have, if I could have chosen, I would have rather he just went off into space and, you know, maybe we'll see him again down the line. But I guess, yeah. I guess uh, we probably won't. Yeah. Unless they, uh, unless they make well, it like the comics where he, he comes back with, uh, you know, a, a reborn body, which is possible. I mean, that's the basic concept behind the Eternals. They're constantly yeah. entering a cycle of rebirth after their body gets destroyed or killed. And I'd even, I'd, I, I feel like this is, that like, I need to say this part, but I liked uh, Madden in his role. I liked his acting in the movie. I thought he was a great character. Yeah. Like, up until that point, like, I, I liked everything about him, you know? I was, mm-hmm. I wanted to see more of him. I liked, even even after he turned heel, there was, I think there was a part of me that was conflicted, and I was, uh, after the movie, I... I I had I sat with that thought trying to figure out whether that was something I was okay with or not and I you know after sitting with it for a couple of days now I'm I'm leaning more on the side of being okay with it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it was a it was definitely a fun twist to the story. So Mhm. You know. I I yeah, I I dug him in his role. Yeah, same here. What did you think, uh, what were the reasons why you might not have enjoyed or appreciated the twist of him being a villain? Uh, I Do you think, think it was because that, that would have been absolutely contrary and disrespectful to the concept of Icarus? Uh, I think for a brief second, there was that part of me that instinctively re- reacted that way. Uh, yeah, it's, it's like if you make Batman a killer or Spider-Man a killer. Yeah, or something. exactly, exactly, exactly. But you know, having sat with it and thought about it for a while, I was like, one, I, I was never a huge Eternals fan, anyways. So I guess <laughs> it's not something where, like, I, I wasn't really a huge Eternals fan. I wasn't really a huge I- Icarus fan. So, like, it wasn't something where I was like. This is outrageous, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't walk away from it like really feeling that way. Like maybe if there was someone out there who was a diehard Icarus fan, then sure, I, I guess I feel bad for that guy. <laughs> but um, or girl. Uh, but at the end of the day, like, did that did that reveal add something to the story? I think it did. It added. It added that extra element of drama, uh, and it didn't feel, uh, you know, uh, at least I didn't feel like it was uh, artificial or 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 out of character or fake or anything like that. You know, um, mm-hmm. I thought it was earned. I, I and I thought it was well done. Yeah, it, it that's the other thing. It wasn't a twist that felt like it was done for, you know, just for the sake of a twist, right? Yeah. It in in retrospect all the I don't know if necessarily like there were a lot of uh hints or anything but it also didn't really feel like it was something it didn't that didn't come came, out of nowhere. Yeah, exactly. 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 So 
I was okay with it from that angle, from that perspective. Yeah. What did you think about that twist, Justin? Especially as someone who didn't already have a preconception of the character. Um, yeah, I thought that twist was good, but I did kind of see it, see it coming though, because uh, um, Ajax' death happened off screen, and that's mm-hmm. always like a telltale sign of you know something else is up. Um, so yeah, it it did. I I wasn't like super surprised that that it came, but it did feel like um, a significant. Um, turn in his character and the plot so yeah it was it was good yeah yeah personally i i didn't mind the t- the turn either i think one one thing about the movie was that it did kind of subvert my expectations yeah because icarus is is typically portrayed as a character who has immense love for humanity so i i definitely can see the point of view where someone's like this movie was you know disrespectful to the concept of the character you know like that i could see someone saying that's as bad as making spider-man a killer or having batman use a gun or something but you know on the other hand he is enough of a blank slate where i mean as sad as it is to say he's he's not really a major or significant character so most people aren't really gonna know either way what the basis of his comic book incarnation is is supposed to be like so I, I guess by by that metric you know at most only a small handful of people would likely be upset but i i, I think overall i i liked how it subverted my expectations because usually like the expected thing to do would be to see that druig was a villain right like yeah. he in in the comics, he's basically the the Maximus, the Mad of the Eternals. He's the one yeah. who's out for himself. There's always yeah. There's always in a Kirby story. There's always a group of these high powered beings in this advanced society. But there's always one of them that's a dick. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there's always just one guy in their utopian group that just happens to be an ass. <laughs> yeah, and, and you would expect that, or I, I expected that to be Druig, but the, it turns out he was one of the most noble of them after all. So yeah. I thought that was that was pretty interesting, you know. And and we had just read that Neil Gaiman Eternals last week, and Sprite turned out to to be the ultimate uh, villain or mastermind yeah. in that story. So there was also a part of me that was wondering if if Sprite was going to turn heel in this film too. And I guess yeah. in a way she did. So yeah. so it was it was kind of cool to see that nod to the comics, you know? Like I'm I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty confident that Chloe Zhao and the other writers read the Neil Gaiman stuff at least. So I can see that being uh an influence. Like if if anything, I'd probably say that the Gaiman and John Romita junior comic was a bigger influence on this movie than the kirby stuff yeah yeah i wanted to could i talk about those a little a, a little bit too um yeah i was well, uh, gonna make sure you get permission from justin first <laughs> go ahead albert you're you're a generous generous man um i wanted to talk about first of all i wanted to talk about the guy that played Druig, uh barry keon i think i Kyo, Kyokan, i don't know how to pronounce it k-e-o-g-h-a-n 
Justin knows how to pronounce it. Keon. I just I just looked it up on YouTube. It's like Keon. I might yeah. be wrong though. So he's he's an actor that I've seen bits and pieces here and there. And um the one thing that I did see him in was The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Uh I I forget the director's name, but it's it's a good film. Yogurt's not the most. You truly are a cinephile. Someone who likes to have sex with cinnamon. <laughs> That's not what that means. Um, well, that doesn't describe me, but (laughs) so, (laughs) um, but the other thing that I knew him uh, about him was that he was actually going to play Yorick in the Why the Last Man live-action TV show. That's right. Uh, I remember hearing that. Yeah, but. That was something that's come, and un- unfortunately, it's gone. But um, he's he's a pretty interesting character actor. Like I, I, I don't know if he's like on my top tier of any lists, but in the things that I have seen him in, and now that I've seen him in Eternals, like he didn't have like the hugest role in Eternals. Like I think they gave him just enough screen time where you got an idea for who he was and what he was about. But mm-hmm. I think uh, Barry Kyohan, I, again, I don't know how to pronounce, like in the scenes where he was, that he was in, I really liked what he had to do. I, I yeah. liked how he like acted. He Like I felt when he was like mad at Ajax about how they were just allowing these uh i want to say they were like conquistador conquistadors to wipe out all these people like his outrage at that like i was i believed in it man exactly i was into his his outburst in that moment you know Mm -hmm. so i i did like his character quite a bit and and again that says something because it's not like he had a substantial portion of the screen time you know um Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, they the the character of Makari was changed into a young woman, a deaf young woman. Uh, but I thought that was a good change because the 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 interaction that those two had, again, it was a thing where you could tell that these characters didn't have a lot of screen time, but in the moments that they were together, like. Like you said, Drew, I believed in their affinity for one another. You know, I mm-hmm. believed that they they cared about each other. You know, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I'd say they're. Although I liked all the characters, all the actors uh, in in the cast, I I did like those two quite a bit. Um, yeah, yeah, they yeah. stood out. Yeah, for sure, and. The one thing that I wanted to say about Sprite was I was expecting there was a part of me that was waiting for the ball to drop to see her, you know, be the villain that we expected her to be from Eternals. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, for that to finally happen and to have her have the same motivation, I thought that was cool. I thought that was well done. I was like, oh, they, they took that from the game and stuff, you know. Yeah, um, she really got tired of being a kid. She wanted to yeah. be an adult and hump other adults. Yeah, exactly. I but that's another example of where I I wish they had 
leaned into that a little more because in the game in Eternals, I don't think they tried to like sanitize it and dress it up as, oh, she'll never be able to have a child. She'll never be able to love or have a relationship. But I think it was a lot more crass in the Gaiman stuff because Sprite was just a horny little bugger and he was just <laughs> mad that he wouldn't ever be able to, you know, hump an adult. Yeah. Yeah. But the the one thing that I was going to say about that was that, that, that her story arc that took me a little bit by surprise was when they revealed that, oh, she's got a crush on Icarus. And I just wish they had done like a scene in the flashback earlier on in the movie to establish that she, you know, was lusting after him or something, you know? Just just so we would know. Maybe that would have been Uki. I, I don't know, but just or not 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 even lusting after him, but like maybe if she if they had established a shot of her, you know, longingly watching Icarus and Cersei, you know, being a couple or something. You wanted that scene where Cersei and Icarus were making love, you wanted it to cut to a shot of Sprite in a bush looking at them? No, no. I wanted a scene where, you know, they were not in the throes of creating the beast with two backs, but happily living a relationship as a couple, you know? They could have just mm-hmm. been walking and holding hands or something, but it it could have been a very simple scene. Like they they had that scene earlier where at the towards the beginning of the movie where Icarus and Cersei are talking and they're just kind of flirting with each other. They could have just shown her in the background, like I don't know, glaring at Cersei or something, but just you know, just a little something to 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 mm-hmm. indicate that that's how she felt. Because when Kumail Nanjali announces that, like, mid-film, I was just like, oh, okay. I mean, I I guess I could have very easily just taken that on face value, but still, like, it felt a little unexpected. Are you referring to the scene when, right before the fight at night in the Amazon, when, when, uh... I think so. Yeah. I I think that was the scene where he was just like... I, I forgot exactly what he said, but he he basically just says, um, You're you in know. with Icarus, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great uh, point that um, kind of illustrates that overall problem that I have with not um, not explaining things uh, elegantly, right? Like yeah. your example of Sprite, you know, just looking and giving a certain expression when she's observing um Icarus and Cersei together that that would have been like a great way to show that jealousy and stuff like that uh, trusting the audience to put together the pieces but what we end up getting is Kingo actually a couple of times explaining or saying like oh you guys didn't pick up on um Sprite being in love with uh Icarus and you know so on so so forth so I I do think that Mm -hmm. um there, there were, there were ways that they could have explained that a little bit better. I'm um, going back to Barry Keon. I, I agree, totally agree. He's like one of my favorite uh, young actors, and uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer is like, 
Terrific oh, man, that, film. That was that was so creepy. He was so good in it. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's one of the sure. the best horror movies that I've seen in recent memory. Um, so check it out, but not on a full stomach because you'll definitely <laughs> feel sick afterwards. Really? Huh? Yeah. Like, I, That's interesting. I felt, I felt sick after watching that, and I'm guessing you didn't, but. Well, well, Albert has an iron stomach. He only yeah. watches horror films with a full bucket of KFC. <laughs> <laughs> um, but well, it's that. Well, I guess it's not not to give away too much. It's not that kind of sick, I guess. But okay, yeah, yeah. It's not. It's not gory or anything. It's more psychological. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to get into. Um, uh, the relationship between Makari and Druid, because I don't think that was actually like it caught me by surprise when they're kind of like flirting with each other. I didn't think it was like well established. Um, but you're saying how that compared to to Sprite uh, being in love with Icarus, which was like explained a couple of times, right? So yeah, just wanted to. Oh, point I could. That out. I... Wait, so you're saying that uh, Makari and Druid. You you felt that that was just as uh, uh, abrupt or yeah or, or even more so because I think the scene I can that see that I, where, I, where, I, I yeah. yeah go ahead they were flirting and I think that there was a commentary with the two other Eternals saying like do you see this I don't like what I'm seeing or something like that and yeah. it was like you know pretty self aware that oh, okay this this relationship was never established and we're just seeing it for the first time. And yeah. that was like a lazy way to give Makari some motivation because she didn't have any, right? Her and yeah. her character, that character and Angelina Jolie's character didn't really have anything. Like I, I felt like Angelina's Jolie's character was like a put there for um, uh, a way to explain Mad Worry, which was a way to to provide a clue to what was going on behind the scenes, right? Mm. So. That's true. But um, when you're referring to to Druig's and Makari's relationship and how the other characters pointed it out, uh, what what scene were you or what part of the movie were you, were you thinking of? I'm trying to remember it. I think. At one, I, I I don't remember specifically which scene, but I know the one that Justin's talking about, where I think they were like touching foreheads or something, and uh yeah, Ki, what's his name? Kiho, Kigo, Kigo, Kinga, Kingo, Kingo and and Fastus, I think. Yeah, they were just kind of looking with astonishment, I guess. Oh, okay. Because yeah. I thought that. I guess it's one thing for their relationship to take the other characters by surprise, but I I thought that in terms of uh, the audience, I thought that it had already been hinted at because there was a flashback scene from the past where they they kind of had that uh, that's I don't what know, I was kind of relationship. That, that's what I was gonna say too. Was it did mm. feel like in the early scene when they were together, it might not have been blatantly romantic, but there was an indication that there was, you know, a hint of flirtish, like, yeah, there was a hint of flirting between the two of them. That scene in the beginning where 
uh, Makari is dealing with these people that are trying to bargain with her, and uh, Druig is speaking to them on her behalf, where he's talking about how she can feel vibrations, and that explains how she's able to hear or understand what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Oh, you right. know? Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, so it felt like I did feel it didn't feel quite as out. Uh, out it didn't feel quite as sudden to me because it just felt like it was when you did see them, they were together and it was playful and that there was something beneath the surface, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah, I didn't read uh, into the that as um being romantic i thought it was just like you know just that playful relationship like if you don't tell i won't tell kind of thing um, yeah okay. yeah yeah i mean to be honest most of the movie i was thinking the same thing where i i, I didn't assume that it, they had a romantic relationship I, I think that i knew they both cared for each other like yeah they might have been way. closer than the other Eternals. Yeah, exactly. Like, but I, I wasn't yeah. sure if we were supposed to accept that they had romantic feelings for each other. Yeah. But when it happened, it was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Do you guys think that the movie was too heavy on the exposition? Because that was one of the big criticisms, I think. And there was the whole... There's a couple of scenes where Arishem, the main celestial, basically describes the history of their origins to to Cersei and to the viewer as well. I personally don't think it was too different from what we've seen in other Marvel movies. Uh, you know, when you have something like Guardians of the Galaxy that it explains what the Infinity Stones are. Or, you know, where they talk about who Ronan is or Thanos or, you know, it, it didn't feel, I didn't feel like they were giving these long protracted monologues about, uh, you know, the birth of the Celestials and and all life in the universe. I I felt like it was just enough to explain everything without being overly wordy but that again this might be an example of me being accustomed to how comics are made and mm-hmm. and, and written and so We're pretty me, okay with this cosmic bs exactly exactly <laughs> exactly so i don't know how you guys uh feel about that Justin? yeah yeah, for me, coming from a different perspective, I didn't know what the Eternals were, what the story was about, the background or anything like that. So uh, coming in, into with, you know, fresh eyes, it, it did seem like a lot to me. And I think it was justified, but I think the way that it was executed and presented uh, uh, did lead to a little bit of fatigue, right? Um, right from the beginning, right? The beginning of the movie opens with the text crawl, right? And I don't think I've seen that at all in any other Marvel movie. Yeah. Um, and then they they go to an action scene, and then they go to a flashback, and then they, like, the 
and then it goes back and forth like with flashback you know scene that's filled with exposition um and that continues for the entire two and a half hours um so yeah from from my perspective i i again i think that we needed that exposition i thought it could have been crafted a little bit better but also acknowledging the fact that uh there's this limited runtime that um the writers had to work with as well so mm-hmm. yeah yeah that makes sense i guess i didn't really mind those expository scenes either i i think i was just engrossed in the story and uh, i just yeah took it as part of as part of it and yeah didn't i did, i guess i could see other people finding that tiresome or or boring or just something that screws with the pacing but going back to the idea of Marvel movies having that set formula, I, I think having that slow pacing made somehow for some reason it, it made the movie capture my attention even more. Like I, I paid closer attention to it than a lot of other straight up action movies where they're just going from action scene to action scene. So, um, yeah, it, I was fine with it. Funny thing is, is, is uh, when Justin and I went to the theater for our showing, there were a ton of kids in the theater. Like it was, it had to have been like 80% middle schoolers or maybe high school kids uh, in the theater. And I remember uh, this, the kid that was sitting directly next to me after, at the end of the movie, I heard him talking to his his other friends and he thought that the final battle was anticlimactic and the reason why was because he said they spent so much time talking and building up the team but the fight was just so short <laughs> i thought it was a decently long fight <laughs> that's pretty weird i mean keep in mind it was a kid he was probably like 14 or something well i hate him <laughs> Yeah. I hate him and I hate his family. <laughs> yeah, I thought the the fight was a uh, um it wasn't it wasn't short by any means, but I I think it differs from the other Marvel movies that I've seen recently where, you know, the, there's these giant CG armies like you were referring to Drew um and yeah. fighting each other and this was more uh contained, right? Yeah. Um, it was a bunch of them fighting one dude. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I um I wanted to discuss I guess some of those visual aspects as well. Um I mean, we spent a lot of time talking about like the gorgeous scenery uh shots that uh Chloe Zhao takes, but mm-hmm. one of the things that I wanted to mention was that you know this this is a, a a property that's based on a Jack Kirby work and Jack Kirby had a lot of his his artwork ha- definitely has flourishes that are uniquely uh, flourishes and uh, styli- uh stylistic flourishes that are uniquely Kirby-esque you know mm-hmm. and 
I thought one of the effects that this movie did in a pretty interesting way was the way that a lot of Kirby characters are drawn with, uh, when, when you look at the designs of their outfits, there's usually all these glyphs or, or um, pretty patterns pretty zany patterns and markings on their on their outfits you know it's yeah it's pretty futuristic and all really like cool looking right Mm -hmm. but i've yet to see that really translated into any of the film versions so for example um if you've seen uh the snyder cut or if you've seen justice league just know that Steppenwolf and Darkseid, they're based on Jack Kirby characters, but they did not have any of those kinds of markings. Parademons did not have those kinds of markings in those movies, right? Mm -hmm. But in the Eternals, when they make the Unimind or when they use their powers, the way that they the way that it's denoted is through this like gold uh gold outline that marks each of their bodies you know or their costumes rather or Mm -hmm. or outfits i don't know what you call outfit right but i like the way that that looked i liked how that was something that i hadn't seen i I thought that was a nice nice little tribute to kirby and you know trying to put his look his his art style onto the screen i i thought that was that was one of the things that worked in terms of the uh, uh, special effects, I guess. Yeah. Do you think that yellowish energy signature was their attempt at the Kirby crackle? Uh, no. I mean, I feel like if they had done the Kirby crackle, it w- it would have been obvious. I I kind of wish they had attempted it, but eh, you know, can't have everything, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What'd you think of that, Drew? Uh, did that, when you saw those uh, markings, did that make you think of, uh, you know, the Kirby outfits at all? To be honest, no. Uh, oh. I think visually, it it didn't really look like Kirby to me. Yeah. I think the way that the art and the aesthetics of the of the movie were designed, like that whole style, it's it's done in a more like modern and grounded kind of uh, fashion sense. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Whereas with, with Kirby, it, it's it's pretty bombastic, you know? Like his style is colorful and bright and pops out at you, whereas yeah. the colors that the Eternals wore for their costumes or their uh, battle outfits or whatever you want to call them, they were a bit toned down, you know? Like it was it was made to to appeal to the sensibilities of the modern movie goer, I believe, yeah. I would say. Because I think with, with Kirby, it would have been, like, a lot louder, you know? I believe and, and that. That's, that's definitely part of the charm of Kirby, because on the page, it, it looks a certain way that you don't see other people draw like that, you know? Uh, yeah. Other than, like, people that are clearly trying to homage his style. Yeah, like he he was just that kind of a visionary. Yeah, and I don't think that the movie really matched his tone or his his art aesthetics. 
and, and again, I'm saying this as someone who hasn't read his Eternals. Yeah. I've read a bunch of other Kirby comics, though, and I think one of the more related or perhaps uh, somewhat similar comics that he did would be something like the New Gods comics or the Fourth World comics for DC. And like you were mentioning uh, Darkseid and, and Steppenwolf earlier, like th the way that Zack Snyder had those characters look was absolutely nothing like how Kirby yeah. made them look. And and that's a big reason why those those characters sucked in terms of how they looked. <laughs> well, I mean, there right. are other reasons why that movie sucked, but that's beside the point. I think with Eternals, the fact that the characters didn't really look and probably didn't really act like Kirby characters, I, I could see that being a, a downside to any real big Kirby purists. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I will say that it was really cool just to know that this was a Marvel movie that still gave him acknowledgement. Like it, it specifically said in the title card or in the end credits uh, based on characters created by Jack Kirby. And it might be the, I think it's the first Marvel thing that doesn't have Stan Lee, you know, like his Stan Lee's name in, in, in the credits, it's purely a Jack Kirby creation. So you got to give him the glory and, and the praise for creating the concepts and the characters in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know, like if he had been alive to see something like this, I, I don't know if he would have cared for it. It's mm -hmm. hard to say, but I hope his family's getting paid for this, man. I hope they're making some money off this. Yeah. Yeah. Because, like, at the end of the day, even though tonally it's it's different from a Kirby comic, it wouldn't exist without Kirby. Yeah. That's fair. That's fair. I do think that Kirby's style is something that... I don't know that it could be captured in live action, you know? I feel like yeah. the, the best and closest thing that we could capture would actually be a cartoon, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, well, uh, I mean, I thought those uh, uh, those uh, gold glyph things that they had coming out of their costumes was a cool look. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the costume designs were still inspired yeah. by his designs, I would yeah. say. Like oh. Icarus's pattern and Cersei's outfit. You know, th those are, st you can look at the original Kirby designs and trace the, the DNA to the movie. So that that still that still fits, and and I think you can even look at the movie's presentation of the Eternals' basic concept of of uh you know being on Earth for millennia and and having an impact on the people. You know that that's that's something that Kirby came up with, and and you can see the the whole I guess the foundational inspiration for it all, right? Like when. Last episode, we were talking about the Chariots of the Gods by Eric von Deniken and and how that was an influence on his creation of the Eternals. And you do get to see that element play out in the movie too, because it is such a foundational piece of their of their backstory. Mm -hmm. But yeah, overall tonally, I would say it was more similar to the Neil Gaiman, John Romita Jr. Eternals. Yeah, I I definitely see that. There were 
a lot of story points that I think it's fair to say could be directly related or where uh, you could point directly to that story, that specific story. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, both both stories had a similar basic concept of one of the Eternals trying to gather up the other Eternals. Yeah. And, you know, we were saying about Sprite earlier how uh, she, she had the same characteristic as the comic book Sprite who wanted to grow up. Uh, because of basically because of unrequited love, um, mm. if we're putting it in a sanitized fashion, yeah. even even the ending of the movie, it reminded me of the ending of the Gaiman comic because at the end of the movie, you have Arashem collecting Cersei, Fastos, and Kingo, and yeah, he yeah. tells them that he's gonna examine their minds or their their memories, and based on their memories, he's gonna judge humanity. Yeah. That was and basically that's, that's, the ending of the Gaiman story. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's that's pretty much what they established with the Dreaming Celestial. Yeah. I just wish that they had broken Sprite's neck. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah, would have was... made... That would have been the perfect... That would have been true to the source material. Yeah. Someone should have snapped that little girl's neck. Oh, that happened in the comic? Yep. Yeah. Oh, well, in the in the comic, Sprite was a little boy, but you know he did get his neck snapped. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think um, my problem with um, that character in the movie was that uh, Sprite was treated like a kid, even though it it so in the movie it didn't seem like her mind evolved into an adult's mind, even though like she's been around for tens of thousands of years right yeah um, so yeah that was that's was my problem with it and at the end where where she literally stabbed her you know family member in the back uh mm-hmm. it was all good because you know you're a kid you weren't thinking right you know like they forgave her you. pretty easily yeah so yeah, yeah that, that was that was my problem with that it should have ended with one of them gently caressing her head as they say you haven't been a kid for millions of years and then crushing her trachea (laughs) yeah Uh. (laughs) that that would have been pretty surprising i think yeah (laughs) Um, Yeah. did you think it was strange how the eternals uh I guess their powers were were portrayed in the, or how tough they were supposed to be cuz uh just thinking back to the scene Justin mentioned where Sprite literally stabs Cersei in the back you know she sticks her through with with a knife and uh gives her a, a real wound but then you have other scenes where where uh someone like Icarus is choking Cersei and he's supposed to be super crazy strong right but then like you would think that he could just crush her her neck with within like seconds but that that isn't the case and then you see there's other scenes of him like choking out and and throwing druig through the through the ground and blasting him with his lasers but later on druig gets up like he's okay like -hmm. did you think it was just a little convenient how sometimes they were able to get hurt and sometimes you know they were they look pretty much invulnerable. Uh, 
Yes, definitely. I think that was yes, that was very convenient. Was it something that bothered you or affected the story, your enjoyment of the story? I don't, I don't think, so. think I, yeah, me neither. I don't think I paid much attention to <laughs> the the level of invulnerability. <laughs> yeah. Characters. Uh, I but think I now was... that you pointed it out, I, I really do hate the movie, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love ruining things for other people. <laughs> what have I done? Um, going back to... Oh, sorry, Albert, did you have something to... No, 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 no. To say? Okay. Um, going back to uh, when we started the podcast, um, I was talking about... The, we were talking about the different critiques about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this one um, excerpt from Justin Chang's LA Times review that uh, would be cool to read. Um, I'll just read it and then get your reactions if that's okay. Yeah. Okay. So he says, the Eternals on-screen struggle, pitting them against the whims of grimly authoritarian overlord, too precisely mirrors their relationship to the Disney Marvel corporate apparatus that created them and that will exploit them until their potential is exhausted. What initially seemed fresh and invigorating devolves into something you've seen countless times before. The fate of the world hinges on an epic burst of teamwork, as well as one character's prefunctory realization of long-suppressed potential. Long-time friends betray and forgive each other, and eyes and hands shoot bolts of guided lightning. A rush of end credits cliffhangers elicits gasps from the audience, and the final title card, Eternals Will Return, starts to sound less like a promise than a threat. You walk out in the depressing realization that you've just seen one of the more interesting movies Marvel will ever make, and hopefully the least interesting one Chloe Zhao will ever make. Jeez. Harsh. So to Did summarize harsh, that. Albert? Well, what were you going to say, Jess? Oh, I was just going to summarize it. So what uh, Justin Chang is saying is that um, there's this repetition of the formula. Though it started, started off uh, refreshing and, and different, um, you kind of get the same formula at the end where, you know, it, the fate of the world relies on teamwork and there's one character who has untapped potential that suddenly is able to save the world um and you know that's that's present in a lot of marvel movies origin stories like you know though like shang chi the last one we saw was the mm-hmm. same kind of deal so um yeah that that's his main gist, I guess, is like not being able to to escape the Disney Marvel formula when uh, you have all the street cred that Chloe Zhao has winning an Oscar and all that stuff. Yeah, I can understand that. I think, if anything, what we definitely know about the Marvel Cinematic Universe is that there's a specific style that they're all presented in. And I think that tends to, I don't know if you would say the word stifle, but it, it definitely 
can affect the director's own tone and personal view, I think. Like there isn't, there aren't too many, if any, Marvel movies where I would say that that's a movie where the director's voice or the writer's voice was very distinct compared to the the 26 other films, you know, or however many it's been now. Like you can see little bits and hints of the director's style and their personal aesthetics in some of these movies. Like I think about this one and also something like Ryan Coogler in Black Panther. And and there are things that you can tell uh, are kind of through lines in, in their entire filmography that are present to some degree in the Marvel movies. But at the same time, these are still corporate owned characters. So there's only like so much that you can do, right? Like you don't want to, or not you, but Disney doesn't want to mess with the formula too much because they don't, they don't want to flop, I assume. So I can understand them having a lot of control over their movies. And I even think that, I mean, I don't know if there's any like documentation or, if anybody's anybody who really knows uh, has has confirmed anything about it, but I would I would definitely guess that at the very least the action scenes are probably choreographed or um, I don't know if not directed necessarily, but like in, heavily influenced by the Marvel house style, and and obviously there are always going to be story points where. I'm pretty sure the powers that be at Marvel, whether that's Kevin Feige or whoever else uh, overlooks the entire story, like they always want their movies to, you know, to have a certain, to to communicate a certain ending. Like you got to get, you can do anything in between point A and point B, but at the end of the day, it has to go from point A to point B. And there's no real flexibility on that. Yeah. Yeah. So in in that sense, I I definitely see what that uh, critic was saying in, in terms of you're just getting like the same stuff over and over, and any hints of originality are kind of choked out because of the corporate nature of them. I mean, I, I get that, I understand it, but I also recognize that these are supposed to be, you know, blockbuster movies and they're already based on corporate owned characters. So I wouldn't really expect the movie to be any different. You know, I wouldn't expect the movie to to completely break free from the Marvel template that they've already established. Mm-hmm. Although it would be interesting if we could resurrect Kubrick and have him do a just truly insane off the wall version of a Marvel superhero story. <laughs> Could you imagine if he did the Punisher, but it was a clockwork orange? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what were your guys thoughts on that quote? Huh? I'm going to have to sit on that a little bit because it, it was kind of a lot. Uh, I did mention that I thought it was a little harsh and I, I think it's, I, I feel like it's pretty much in line with 
what all the other critics more or less had to say on on this movie mm-hmm. which like i mentioned at the start of the podcast it just felt i don't know what it was that i'm not necessarily seeing from like i don't know if i'm incapable of seeing it from their perspective uh but i i just don't know where that level of dissatisfaction with the movie is coming from i well that's not true i think i understand it like logically but i'm seeing substantially worse movies than this and i you know i i i, I don't necessarily get why what makes this movie something that gets such a low rating on on a on a on rotten tomatoes or something like that right mm-hmm. so but but i do think his his review is pretty much in line with what we've seen from the other critics maybe it's just telling of the the marvel or superhero fatigue that we're beginning to get or uh, you know at least from the critics end but yeah who knows, yeah but who knows. I, I would have expected them to say this you know 10 movies ago that's true and on top of that i would assume that with the past couple of years you know being in covid not having a lot of movies come out that it would have been you know a, there would have been a reprieve of sorts right yeah where they were like look we haven't seen we just want escapism. We haven't seen anything for a couple of years now. Um, it's nice just to have a blockbuster spectacle where we can forget for a second that the world was under lockdown, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I, I guess they gave up on that pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. What about you, Justin? What did you think of that uh, quote? Yeah, I think I reacted in a similar way you did, Drew. Um, I did not expect it to uh, be totally different. I expected, like I said with the Shang-Chi review, um, to to have those aspects of the Disney Marvel corporate apparatus, right? Um, mm-hmm. And, and and those mandates that they hand down like you got to have this in the film you got to have this fight scene in the film you got to have one character that realizes their potential um so yeah i'm i'm of the same mind as you i do think at, that it's really interesting that um what i expected uh from the reaction from the general audience was like oh this is not our typical Marvel movie that we're accustomed to, uh, I hate it. But it's, it's actually the opposite, right? We're seeing positive reviews from the general audience, um, and then vice versa on the on the critic side. I expected them to like this much more because it is different. But I think what is making up that difference is that uh, the having Chloe Zhao as a director mm-hmm. really set those expectations pretty high, and having the first, you know maybe two-thirds of the movie play out in in such a different, refreshing, invigorating way um, that, to quote Justin Chang, um, and then have it go back to the Marvel formula for them, really, mm-hmm. really, uh, you know... Um, it really showered them. them on the experience. Yeah, 
Exactly. Yeah. So um, I, I think it's it's all about expectations and um, uh, that's that's why we have the ratings and the critics we do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. You uh you underestimated your average man, Justin. I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> uh, sorry, I'm, how did I'm, I how did I do that? I'm so uh, accustomed to uh denigrating your average human being that when they subverted that expectation that uh that shook me a little bit. <laughs> you underestimated them because you you expected them to uh uh to to basically hate this movie because it was different and they refused yeah. to indulge you. I I don't know if it was about my indulgence, but yeah, you're right. I did <laughs> I did underestimate them. <laughs> Uh, and I think I would do that again, actually. If there was another move, move Marvel movie out there that was different, I would expect the general audience not to like it. Yeah, I'll take. Uh, I, I'd I probably follow that bet. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't even know that the general audience liked this movie, but maybe that's because I think so little about other people that their opinions don't matter to me in the slightest. (laughs) I wanted to uh, discuss one other thing. Um, Mm -hmm. When, so you talked about, you, you asked us uh, a bit earlier on about our criticisms. um, And I did want to discuss one of the elements that I'm still trying to work out in the film. And they were, I thought it was a pretty big part of the film, Um, Mm -hmm. but I don't know if they necessarily knew what they wanted to do with it. And what that is, is the deviance, you know? Yeah. Um, Because they initially were set up as the, the, the big threat to the Eternals at, at the, at the beginning of the, of the movie. Mm -hmm. And as, the film goes on um they become it's revealed that they are basically the diametric opposite of the eternals also created by the celestials they were the first beings that were sent to these planets as essentially as a way of maintaining uh some form of balance but because of their nature because of their ability to evolve they Mm -hmm. began to run amok on these planets and as a result the celestials had to create eternals to balance it out right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but then so the the uh what's it called the deviants start out as just kind of these mindless beasts that are just attacking everyone and everything and partway through the film, um, you know, one of them gains sentience and begins to have their own motivation outside of just mindless violence. And it becomes almost this third party involved in the uh, 
in this conflict between the Eternals and the Celestials, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It, I, I just felt like... I know that they needed some sort of instigating force at the beginning of the movie, but I just feel like partway through, once you get towards the end, they, they, it almost felt like they didn't really know what to do with the Deviants. Like, they had to give them give one of them some a sense of consciousness or awareness just so that, that was the movie's version of warlord crow what's warlord crow oh you know he's the the main deviant like the one that oh. has a name and and appears in various comics yeah but i just i i guess i'm i'm not sure why they had to start out as these mindless creatures because again just based on what I read in the game and stuff, they it always seemed like they were they were people. They had sentience. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they were intelligent. So, they just so, they all just looked like creatures, but they were they were they had their own culture and they lived exactly exactly together in a society. Uh, yeah. They they were given they they were kind of the I don't know. I guess in this movie they were turned into just a bunch of cgi monsters that the heroes could fight yeah but i will say that they were the fact that they were wiped out pretty early on it at least it spared us from having a final battle that was just an army of them fighting yeah. the eternals at the end so i i'll, I'll take that yeah i was kind of worried I, that that's where the movie would end with with them with an army of cgi deviants fighting the eternals yeah it just you're you're right. I, I I do agree with that. I'm glad we didn't see that. I didn't want to see that, but I do think that overall they they were probably the clunkier part of the movie and maybe an extra plot point that didn't necessarily. Uh, yeah, again, I I just don't know if they really knew what they wanted to do with those characters. Yeah, you know? I guess the importance of them didn't feel too weighty because they were just. Yeah, I mean, they were wiped out midway through the movie, other than Warlord Crow, and uh-huh. uh, it they they were just too mindless to really feel consequential. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I agree, Albert. I think um, they they were that instigating force at the beginning of the movie, and as it progressed, maybe like halfway into the movie they served as or at least the the sentient one served as like a red herring right so you didn't know yeah. who the real bad was you assumed it was this guy but once it was revealed that icarus was the big bad then like what do you do with this like no yeah right this, exactly yeah. and it, um they had to make him smart so that he would have a reason to come meet them in their final battle yeah right 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 isn't that like such a weird reason <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah yeah i mean when you when you spell it out like that and really examine what they did with the character it or the the entire uh race of them it it does feel like they were they weren't very important in the grand scheme of things like if they had if the movie makers had uh rewritten the movie and and taken out the deviants it it almost wouldn't have felt like a big change. Like it didn't. It wouldn't feel like we were missing anything important, right? 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or they could have even rewritten, like, <sighs> yeah, okay, I'm not going to backseat quarterback the whole thing, but uh, suffice it to say, I, I, I agree with you guys. Um, you know what, what they remind me of? It's like, you know, sometimes when there's this infestation of a certain, like, pest in a lake or something, and you want to get rid of it, <laughs> so what you do is you throw in these fish that'll eat that pest or get rid of it, but then the fish become a pest because they they <laughs> overpopulate. So that that's what the deviants kind of remind me of. But where I have a problem is that uh, like wait, are they the fish or are they the pests? They're the fish. They're the fish. Okay, okay. okay. But then but then you know that that cycle continues because the Eternals are the next ones, right? But um. What I have a problem with is, shouldn't the Celestials have foresight into seeing that? Because like the whole, the whole reason for putting these fish into the lake is to <laughs> advance, yeah, evolution, right? Actually, that mm-hmm. thought did cross my mind too. Like for these all-powerful, all-knowing beings, that's a uh, quite a slip-up. <laughs> it is. Yeah. <laughs> and then they made the same mistake again with the Eternals because they didn't expect them to evolve either, right? So. Yeah. But but I think that goes back to what I was saying earlier about the idea of these deities not being as as perfect as we think they are. Like again, this might be me bending over backwards to try to make it make sense, but if if we look if if within the confines of the story we look from the perspective of the humans at these celestials as these all-powerful beings only to realize that they're as petty and as small as your average person or as manic as your average person you could say the same for the eternals and their relationship with the celestials right because the Eternals could look at the Celestials as, well, these are the real quote-unquote gods, and we view them as all-knowing and all-powerful, but what if they were just as capable of fault, just as stupid, just as short-sighted as, you know, as we wouldn't expect them to be? Just a thought. I don't know what you Mm -hmm. guys think. What do you guys think of that? Yeah, I, I get what you're saying, man. It It's interesting because the film does play a lot with the theme of faith and the nature of a free will. The whole idea of being created by an intelligent designer, I think that's one of the things that I enjoyed seeing in this movie. Just this idea of, of uh, being designed with a specific purpose right and then the question of what happens when we stray away from that purpose like that's that's what we see with uh not only the deviants but the eternals themselves as well like you just mentioned how celestials <laughs> basically made the same mistake right they what they really wanted was to create these automated beings that would do exactly what they were created to do but neither of those creations ended up doing what they were supposed to. Like there was some 
something in them that made them deviate from their original intended purpose. So I thought it was interesting for the film to explore that idea because that's, you know, that's something that I think is a universal uh, idea that, that people, you know, philosophers and, and just people in general throughout human civilization have pondered. Mm. I also think it's interesting that the film presents a more humanistic viewpoint. Like this movie is definitely about self-determination and the freedom to do whatever you want because you choose to do it and you kind of have your own, you decide on your moral values and you act on them. And it's a bit ironic because the Eternals are almost like gods themselves. I mean, compared to human beings, I guess it's it's almost like for a human, they would look to a an Eternal as almost this godlike figure, but the Eternals see the Celestials in the exactly. same way. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so there is definitely some irony there in the fact that I think the film presents a reading where the Eternals basically win the battle and do the right thing because they act in a more human way. I also wanted to ask an, another thing, and I, I'll, I'll, I'll put it up in the air, but I'm going to ask it of Justin because he might be a little more familiar with this but justin are you there yep here did you so the very last battle where the celestial was coming out of the earth and that scene where cersei comes down and you know slams the the palm of the celestial turning it into stone right Mm -hmm. did did that like did was there any sort of a reading of that to you cuz i was i was reading that or as i was watching that scene it made me think of the story of like the monkey king and you know uh and i want to say it, it was like the buddha or something like that where it well that story was in american born chinese too but it's it's how um you know the the prideful monkey king wants to prove that he's this god and he proves it wants to prove it by showing that he can go to the furthest reaches of the universe and doing things that nobody else can and the buddha tells him uh you know no matter where you go you will always be in the palm of my hand and then so the monkey king flies to the furthest reaches of the universe and marks a pillar on the very edges and when he comes back to the Buddha, the Buddha reveals, shows him his hand, and all he's managed to do is mark one of his fingertips or something like that. You know that story, uh, Justin? Uh, yeah, I think I recall some of that in American-born Chinese, but I'm not too yeah. familiar with it. Yeah, I that didn't was make American-born Chinese. Yeah, I didn't make um, I didn't make that connection, but that, okay. that's cool. That um, well, I mean, I was curious I to see because I saw that and I was like, oh. Again, it might just be a minor thing, but just the idea of of that scene jumped out at me and how much it connected to that story. And I I don't know. I like I I haven't put I haven't I don't have any like fully formed ideas on that, but I was just curious to see if either of you 
like made that connection or had any thoughts on that? Or if you don't, that's cool too. <laughs> no, I, I didn't make that connection, but I, I think you bringing it up certainly gives me something to consider. Yeah, same here. Okay. Because okay. I, I do think that the idea of religion and or religious beliefs or faith in general as a concept is a pretty big theme in the movie. So, so for you to insert kind of this uh, Buddhist reading into it, that, that, I find that pretty fascinating. It, it definitely makes me think about it. I mean, I, I don't have any uh, like concrete thoughts or analysis at this moment. Yeah. I'm just, uh, you know, contemplating the fact that you brought it up in the first place because it, it didn't cross my mind at all i wasn't yeah i wasn't sharp enough to to catch that but now well, that you brought it up I, yeah I, i'm gonna look at it in a different way yeah it's i i don't have anything concrete either it was just something where i looked at it and i was like i wonder if chloe Zhao, you know assuming that she put that in there or that you know that that was one of the scenes that she wrote in like if if she was trying to say something, you know, mm -hmm. or if there was, if that was a direct reference to that story. So I just, yeah, I, I, I really, it, it's something I'd probably, I'm still probably going to think about a little bit more, but yeah, I just thought I'd put it out there for you guys. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for bringing it up. Yeah. Yeah. Did I was guys... interested in that idea just because when, when it comes to the whole theme of, of faith and free will in, in this movie, I just thought that idea in general was pretty interesting because I don't think we've really seen too many other superhero movies that examined that. And and for me, because I'm a Christian, it, it made me look at the movie and think about those ideas in, in a different way, too, because it's it, it does hit on the idea of, of, of being created by someone that is just infinitely more powerful than you and, and not only being created, but being designed with a specific purpose so to see that play out in the eternals it it, it was something that i don't know I, I guess because it's something i think about on a pretty regular basis it it took me by surprise to, to see that and seeing you know different other religions kind of manifested in the visuals or even in the story uh, yeah that's definitely something that i find fascinating and i'll, I'll be sure to look for it um Next time I watch it again. I also had uh, some other just general questions I wanted to put out there for you guys. But mm -hmm. did you guys have any thoughts on like just the what the cast ended up looking like and just like the diversity of the entire cast? And um, because it's kind of a big part of the movie, but it but it's not a big part of the movie at the same time. You know what I mean? Like it's. I guess it's one of the unspoken important things about the film is just how diverse the cast is and mm -hmm. like how it applies to the idea of the Eternals. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely something cool to see in the movie. I I, I appreciated that, man. It It's a situation where the original characters were pretty much all just white people. I mean, I don't necessarily i don't i definitely don't find any offense in that i mean it that was just how they were created 
Yeah. So uh, I also don't think that their ethnic appearance or their gender or anything like that was super central to the concept or the idea of each of them. Yeah. So making the cast for the movie more diverse was something that I was totally on board with. It's an element that should kind of inspire people, you know, just to see that this group of people who are so different have this tight-knit family kind of relationship, and it doesn't really matter uh, what they look like or anything like that. Even in the movie, you don't really see them commenting on each other's appearance. Like, it's weird because they're all supposed to be, like, created by aliens. Yeah. And they just look like human beings. There's nothing that really makes them look like... uh, They don't look like freaks or anything like that. (laughs) They don't look like... They don't look obviously different from human beings. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I thought the same. I think um, championing diversity and inclusion is uh, well worth it and um, uh, needs to be done more of, for sure. Uh, but I, I don't think it was like put into this movie uh, as like a, a symbol of wokeness or anything like that. I think it was well justified because yeah. the Eternals are are supposed to represent humanity in all its mm-hmm. different facets. So yeah, um, yeah, it was greatly appreciated, um, but it did not distract from the plot or the world that they were building. Yeah. I was, I I actually, yeah, I agree with that sentiment quite a bit. I remember watching the movie and I was just saying that I remember when I first saw the Eternals trailer, like one of the things that jumps out at you is just how diverse the cast is. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, I wonder if there are people out there who are going to hate this movie because... You know, it's a bunch of uh, virtue signaling or whatever, right? But after watching the film and, you know, after having read the comics, I've I've walked away with the belief that I actually think it makes more sense that they're diverse. Yeah. Um, Because in the original comics, one of the things I wanted to say is, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but, like, the original iteration or okay at least in the neil gaiman version of their origin the story was that the celestials came to earth and it took a bunch of uh it took a hundred people and experimented on them until they eventually uh or maybe not even a hundred it might have taken a bunch but ultimately they through all the people that ex- they experimented on they eventually create a hundred and these hundred are mm-hmm. the eternals right yeah that's right so it it would make sense that if they gra- like if they just took a massive pool of life from the planet and experimented on them that they would be diverse that they would all look different and on top of that the the eternals that we get end up becoming the various inspiration for mythological figures across the planet for different cultures mm-hmm. so it'd be weird if they were all white right yeah, you know, so, like so, it. I think this was a change that made a lot of sense in retrospect. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I'm with you in that. 
whatever the original iteration of the Eternals were, that they, they are where they are, and I I don't. It's not something where I felt like I needed them to change it or they had to change it, but now that they have changed it, it's like okay, that makes it makes yeah. sense. I welcome you know? it. I welcome it exactly. Yeah. So and and even if you read the current ongoing Eternal series by Kieran Gillen and Asad Ribic, you you'll you'll see that all the Eternals there are are uh, you know multi ethnic and and whatnot so you know everybody is represented in in terms of the the cast like even even things like uh sprite in the comics is is now a a girl as opposed to a a little boy you know stuff like that even gets explained because of how their immortality works and how there's a mechanism that basically continues to rebirth them every time they get destroyed so that's why they can't really die but when they get recreated, they can, I guess, alter their appearance uh, in some form or fashion. And, and, you know, they look how they want to look, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. I got to pick up that version of uh, The Eternals. It's it's relatively new, so I haven't had a chance to check it out. But it's... Uh, I, I I heard you keep some pretty good praise on it, so... Yeah, I love it, man. It's great. I gotta check it. Gotta check it. Actually, speaking of comics, one of the interesting and unexpected influences on on the movie was Earth X. Yeah, I thought that was a nice little Easter egg too. Yeah, just the idea of uh, Earth as an egg for a celestial embryo. Like there was yeah. a moment early on in the movie when I was wondering, dude, I wonder if this is how we're gonna see Galactus. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. In that comic, it was established that Galactus was the universe's natural uh, enemy. Antithesis to, to the celestials. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. why he destroyed planets, because he was all about hunting and destroying these uh, these eggs. So yeah, that, yeah. That made sense to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, if we track that thought further down, it kind of makes sense that we might see that somewhere down the line. Because mm-hmm. the Fantastic Four are on the horizon, or oh, at least true. I assume they are. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, the one of the other funny moments was uh, while you were watching the movie, in the middle of your viewing, you you sent me a message. You texted me. Yeah. And you said you were <laughs> you were pretty pumped up because you just saw something in a Marvel movie that you had never seen before, and and it like totally sold you on the movie. And yeah. then I. After the after I watched the movie, I messaged you and I was like, Earth X? And you were like, nah, it wasn't that. And then I said, Earth Sex. <laughs> because <laughs> you'd seen the first love scene in a in a Marvel movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was watching the movie and uh it was a scene where Icarus and Cersei were, you know, they were flirting, and then the very next scene was just bareback and just straight humping. And I was like, I'd never seen that in a Marvel movie. I think this is my favorite one yet. <laughs> <laughs> this is by far the best Marvel movie ever. <laughs> it was pretty unexpected, man, I gotta say. It was very unexpected. I was I, I remember sitting in the theater by myself, or or you know, there were other people, but I was I wasn't with anyone. But I stopped I looked up and I looked side to side and I was just 
it, I was just in disbelief. I was like, did I just see that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, I wanna I wanna understand why that that's such a big deal. And understand that it's the first sex scene in a Marvel movie. But I did hear like in the theater that we were sitting in, Drew, like, you know, it was full of kids and there were like so many audible gasps throughout. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just the way that the Marvel universe has curated itself over the past 10 plus years. Very family friendly. Yeah. Other than and, the violence. Yeah. And even though like it wasn't like the most gratuitous sex scene, like they they tend to play it very close to the chest when it comes to uh that kind that content, right? So, you know, a lot of the times it's, oh, they kiss each other or they're holding hands. It's it's very saccharine. You know, it usually just fades to black or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then to actually show them, like, in the throes of passion, especially when you've been uh, trained to expect certain things from their movies over the course of that many years to... to suddenly just see that it's it's like running into a brick wall yeah <laughs> it's shocking it's like what <laughs> yeah man i mean imagine how many uh parents might take their kids to watch it and now they've got to like have their kids see that they don't you know they've i'm sure people who have uh watched all the marvel movies believe they know what to expect so yeah. you know more for the most part kids like these movies that you know they're it's but it, it, I would feel weird if I took my, like, eight-year-old to see this. I'd feel even weirder if I took somebody else's eight-year-old to see this. I would feel weird if you took someone's eight-year-old to see this. Yeah, especially against their will. I'd probably have to call the police. Probably. So uh, don't <laughs> tell me if you ever do that, Albert. <laughs> no, but I, I don't think it's... It wasn't like the most traumatizing thing or anything. It was, yeah, you know, but at the same time, just again, just because our expectations have been catered to a certain way, it's it's a pretty surprising moment, you know. And mm -hmm. it wasn't even like the most gratuitous thing. Like, imagine if it had if we had seen like a butt cheek, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know. <laughs> People would have been rioting in the streets. <laughs> <laughs> All we just saw was bareback and a man on top of a woman. But still, it was a. Uh, I don't know the the I guess the meta, the meta textual experience of it all is pretty interesting to consider. You know. Mhm. Mm mhm. Mm um, yeah. But speaking of uh, uh, peculiar moments, um. So I was going to tell Drew, so every time we go check out one of these Marvel movies, occasionally uh, there'll be something happen that happens in one of these films, and I'll laugh <laughs> because, you know, because my mind just works a certain way. And I had one of those scenes here in Eternals, and I'm wondering if you can guess which part that was. I mean, if you hadn't, Wait. if we hadn't already talked about it, I would have guessed the lovemaking scene. Yeah, no, it, like that didn't make me laugh, but it did make me think. 
I guess it made me think it'd be funny to talk to you about it. But <laughs> <laughs> Justin, do you have a guess? Um, no. I I only can think of like the the stingers where Pip comes into. Oh, uh, oh, dude! Justin knows who Pip the troll is, man. You know nice. stuff. Nice. Okay. So before we go into the stingers, I'll I'll just give it to you guys. So we I was watching the movie. It was towards the end, and you know Sprite had just stabbed Cersei, and then mm-hmm. suddenly. Druig just beans her in the head with a rock. (laughs) And I just started laughing. (laughs) I don't know why I thought it was funny, but I just was like, I think the shock of it it just made me laugh out loud. (laughs) Yeah, that that is funny, man. Yeah, people. When when is it not hilarious to hit a little girl in the back of the head with a big rock? You're right. You're right. (laughs) That's that's like the fundamental. That's comedy 101. Yeah. Comedy 101. Exactly. Uh, it's up there with getting kicked in the nuts. Yeah. So, what were you... Did you guys want to talk about the stingers at all? Yeah, yeah, might as well. So, we, Justin mentioned Pip the Troll, and we saw Star Fox. Funny thing yeah. is, is that in our theater, when Star Fox showed up on the screen... Because there were so many kids there, all the there were a bunch of kids that just started squealing, like literally squealing with delight. Really? Yeah. yeah. And, huh. and I recognized Star Fox immediately, but then I was like, these kids wouldn't know who he is. Why do they even care? So I, asked, <laughs> I had to ask Justin who that dude was, and he said it was a guy from One Direction. Okay. 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 I yeah, think Harry I remember Styles. Harry Styles. I think, yeah. I think some people in in my audience made like some sort of commotion but it was it certainly wasn't a squeal oh yeah it was it was like a pig farm in our theater mm-hmm. huh okay okay and i gotta ask something to you guys okay so the teaser stinger at the end is some of the eternals have gone into space they're on a mission to find the the the, the other eternals across the universe right mm-hmm. and then what happens is out of the shadows, or no, uh, in a dark hallway, you start to see flourishes, flashes of light, and then suddenly Pip appears along with another Eternal uh, by the name of Star Fox, and that's that's just kind of he says something about finding the other Eternals and he knows where they are or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And, he also and, mentions that he's Thanos's brother. Yeah, yeah. So that's you know that's that's the next seed for whatever happens next so i was gonna ask was did you guys happen to catch who the voice of pip the troll was it wasn't Patton oswald was it i think it was i checked the credits on or i looked at the wikipedia page and the credits there and it said Uh it was Patton oswald and Patton oswald has his fingerprints all over the marvel universe dude he was in agents of shield as an agent He's the voice of Modok on the Hulu series, and now he's also Pip the Troll. That is a uh, that's impressive. Yeah, he's everywhere. Do you have any thoughts on Star Fox and Pip? Oh, uh, not really. If I had to be honest, they were never characters that I was especially fond of. Mm-hmm. Uh. 
it always just felt like Star Fox's entire point of being there was to get beaten up by Thanos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I never really had much uh, thought of him ever. I, I think we had a conversation about him uh, a couple of months back where maybe it wasn't even a couple of months. It might have been a month back where I was, I think I was trying to figure out is he is he an eternal or is he or is he a titan is a titan a different thing than an eternal they're related so if you read the current eternals there's a there's a pretty good explanation in the kieran gillen Asad ribich run that that explains the relationship between the titans and the eternals the, but to make a long story short essentially the titans or the Titanians, I forget exactly what the proper term is, but they're an offshoot of the Eternals. They they basically are descendants of an Eternal that moved to Titan long ago. So yeah, there is a reason that Thanos and Star Fox are related to the Eternals. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But but Justin, did you know that Star Fox is best known for being a sexual harasser in the comics <laughs> i did not know that when i heard star fox i thought the video game yeah so, so like his his <laughs> his real name that's his superhero name but his real name is eros and right. his whole power well i mean he's got like super strength and and he can fly and stuff and he's durable but his his signature power is that his words can charm people and he specifically uses that power often to charm women and get into their pants. So, like, there was a whole story where uh, in She-Hulk, because She-Hulk is a lawyer, she was she she had to defend him from accusations of of sexual assault in a legal court. When are we gonna see that movie? Well, they Cold are making Donald. a She-Hulk TV series, right? Oh, that, that is true. Uh, yeah, it'll be we're getting closer, man. <laughs> maybe in a maybe at, maybe one day we'll see that. Uh, it'll be She-Hulk v Star Fox. <laughs> Do you have any um, insight into the naming of the Eternals? So we we just mentioned Eros, which is which is uh, a Greek god, I think, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then Gilgamesh is a Mesopotamian god, I think. But then we have uh, names like Thena which is like Palace Athena, but we call her Athena, and Makari, which I, I'm assuming is Mercury. Yeah. So what what are the, why are some of the names not the the names that um, uh, they were inspired by? And why you mean, are, why aren't they exactly those names? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think we talked about this a little bit in the last episode where Jack Kirby was inspired by the idea of uh, the chariots of the gods. And so he wanted to tell a story where um, he wanted to tell a story where what if where the 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 the, the seed of. Worshipped in our past were actually aliens that had come to Earth eons ago, but you know because he was 
I guess because he just wanted to name them so that they were unique, but at the same time allude to the fact that they were these Greek gods. That's why he named it so that they were almost the same as the 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 gods that inspired them, but at the same time they were they're not exactly those gods. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, because I think when you look at the Marvel Universe closely, there's a lot of different pantheons of gods. Like, basically, most of the different mythological gods have appeared in some form or fashion in the Marvel Universe already. So it would get convoluted if they were named or spelled exactly the same, because, you know, then there's that confusion. But if, if you change... Athena to just plain Athena or spell Icarus differently or Makari instead of Mercury, then you can have those Greek gods continue to remain and still have these Eternals exist as separate characters. So yeah. I'm, I'm guessing that's another part of the reasoning why Kirby named them that way. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Hmm. Mm-hmm. What what did you think about the post credits, uh, uh, post credits scene with the Black Knight opening up the case and picking up his ebony blade and then hearing the voice of Blade? Um. Well, okay. So I before I go too deep into it, I I did want to mention this. Like, um. So watching the movie The Eternals, it. I I have to say that for the most part it really did feel like it's own self-contained animal like mm-hmm. there were a couple of lines here or there that were placed to remind you that the Eternals existed as a as a larger part of the uh Marvel Cinematic Universe as a whole yeah. but but the movie for the most part if you just watch it really just felt like its own entity you know like if 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 this had been the first movie uh on its own i i I almost feel like i wouldn't really have needed to know anything else about the anything else that was going on in the marvel cinematic universe yeah uh i'd say even tonally uh it just felt like its own thing right Mm mm-hmm and it isn't until you get to the teasers where you get like the real Marvel tie-in stuff, you know? Yeah. So, I like I I really feel like the teasers were the 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 more conventional feeling scenes, and I I I will say that I did appreciate that they they essentially cordoned off all of that stuff uh to the end, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that being said, uh, I, I, I can't say that I'm a huge fan of the idea of Blade. Um, so before we started the podcast, I was a little late to it and I overheard a conversation that Drew and Justin were having where Drew was talking about how the idea of Blade is just a corny idea to him because... Mm -hmm. He's a dude that fights vampires. Yeah. And well, and he's, I thought, he's also like half a vampire himself, right? He's the yeah. day walker and he yeah, fights yeah, vampires. Yeah. He's a vampire yeah. hunter. Yeah. 
And I thought about that, and I was like, you know what? I don't think... I think the problem that I have with vampires in the context of the Marvel universe is that in a universe where you have where like you have someone like Iron Man, like vampires are really kind of nothing, right? So mm. the idea that Blade is gonna be in the next in the next installment of the Marvel universe doesn't really do much for me either. But I guess I don't really have a huge problem with Blade in and of itself in it of himself or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that being said, I, yeah, I don't know. Like it did feel like the, the very last scene of the movie where, uh, I forget his name, but, uh, where he reveals that Dane Whitman, you know, where Dane Whitman reveals that he has some sort of sordid history of his own. Yeah. Um, yeah, that that did feel a little out of nowhere, and I'm only glad that they placed that towards the end of the movie. And uh, mm-hmm. well, we'll see how they set it up for the next film. I mean, it's it's not those couple of scenes with him in it didn't do much to make me look forward to the idea of the Black Knight. But hey, we'll see. <laughs> you know, how do you feel about the character or the concept of the Black Knight in the comics, Albert? You have any opinions I, on on him? Honestly, he was always a jobber to me, <laughs> you know? Dang, he was, that's brutal. He was a guy that they were constantly trying to find a, may, a way to make him work. So he was in that era of the Avengers where uh, they all had the leather jackets. They gave that him was a pretty laser, bad era. They gave him a laser sword and a yeah. flying motorcycle. Like, <laughs> they just keep trying to do stuff with him, and it just... I I just don't think he's a character that works either. Like so maybe it makes sense that he's with Blade because they're those are two <laughs> ideas that neither of them should work and neither of them are necessarily ideas that I care about. Yeah. So, but I will say it was fun to see um what's who's the actor that plays him? Kit Harrington? It was fun to see Kit Harrington and uh 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 and Madden together in that one scene. Uh, I mean, that it was like an obvious nod to the fact that they were both on the same show together. But yeah, I don't know. There was there was something about that that made me uh, chuckle. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. What'd you Justin, guys think? I was gonna ask Justin if either of those uh, end credit scenes enticed him into watching, wanting to watch future Marvel movies. No, not really. I I am excited <laughs> to see uh, Mahersha Ali um, in a Marvel movie, though. That'll mm-hmm. be fun. Yeah, he's a great actor. Yeah. Yeah. And I if just the wish bombs... he wasn't played. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And if the movie bombs and ends his uh, filmmaking career, I think it'll be cool to see him as a rapper again, too. So that's uh, <laughs> the win-win. Does he make good music? Yeah, he was on Hieroglyphics as uh, Prince Ali. That was his stage name. Oh, shoot. I didn't realize they were the same dude. <laughs> <laughs> Holy crap. Oh, man. You've feel... uh, you've opened my eyes, Justin. Yeah, man. Wow, that's the biggest revelation of the night. <laughs> I feel like you need to like put your head between your knees and like take a breath or something. 
<laughs> you all right there? I will be. I will be. Does that make you like him even more? It does, man. It okay, does. Okay. What if, as Blade, he does, like, mad beats? He's the rapping vampire hunter? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, like Kazam, the rapping genie. <laughs> Ooh, man. <laughs> I mean, I'd, Yeah, that'd be cool. I'd probably still watch it. I'd watch I think, it just for that. Yeah, I would watch it just for that. I think I'm enough of a sucker that I would still watch <laughs> a Blade movie at this point, even though I don't care for the character and I'm not too interested in, in vampires in the Marvel Universe. Yeah. If 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 Marshala Ali is going to rap in the movie, I mean, I would definitely for sure be excited to watch it. But just knowing yeah. that he's going to be in the in the movie in the first place, I'll still watch it, man. I'll still watch it. Yeah. This what is gold. We we should pitch this to Marvel. It'd be great for Blade to freestyle his own narration as he's like fighting. Oh, dude, dude, yeah. And then like, like he could do like sound effects, like beatboxing as he like. Oh man, what if Blade was a vampire hunting musical? Where all he does is rap. Yeah, I'm I'm on board. Like I'm with it. The MCU's version of Hamilton or something. Yeah. 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 Dude, that would sell. We've 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 done it. We've cracked the code. We have, man. I I, I think you I think that's the greatest idea. You weren't going to watch Blade, but if you're gonna watch Blade, this is the only way that you will watch Blade. I would not only watch Blade, I would buy the soundtrack. Oh man. This this idea just keeps making money, man. Yeah. It's making money moves. When they don't do that, I'm just going to be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> Almost as disappointed as when they don't break Sprite Snack. Yeah. <laughs> but at least you got hit in the back of the head with a rock. That's true. That's true. I will say that when that happened, mm-hmm. when that happened... People, some people cheered in our audience. <laughs> I was like, "Ooh, was your audience uh, primarily adults?" Uh, I want to say yes. I want to say yes. I don't. I think there were some teenagers, but I, they came in like later in the movie, so I couldn't really, I couldn't really get a good indicator of like what their age was so i'm i'm pretty sure everybody was like yeah for the most part part adults with Mm -hmm. a few teenagers here and there well do you guys have any final thoughts before we get out of here um i just want to reiterate the fact that i really enjoyed the movie like it's you know it it's not the perfect movie but i i liked it quite a bit mhm yeah i i uh, say the same thing um i i thought it was a a good movie i just thought it was overstuffed there's too much going on yeah 10 characters to 
to introduce and their abilities and their relationships and this whole universe with celestials and i just kind of wish that the movie was either longer with intermissions or a tv series mm-hmm. yeah, and i guess for my final thought i will just say that i really like this movie quite a bit and i acknowledge that it can be over ambitious but personally i'm okay with that and i would rather have something that's over ambitious and maybe even overstuffed but the fact that it's different makes me really really appreciate it and i i think for me personally it's it's in the upper tier of my mcu power rankings so i i would i would definitely watch this again i'd be excited to watch this again well cool uh justin thanks for taking the time man and being on our show again it was great to have you in our discussion yeah thank you for having me it was great talking to you all about this yeah man always good to have you on the podcast dude mm-hmm. so what's what's the next comic book related thing that we can have as an excuse for you to come back on justin <laughs> any any uh any movie that we see together i'll probably take some recommendations on comics though too uh okay okay yeah albert what what comics would you recommend to justin i mean are we talking about in and if he's gonna watch or if he's chasing something that's similar to eternals or just anything what kind of recommendations are you looking for justin uh i guess i don't really know i don't know that much about comics so looking for you all um for guidance there would you be interested in superhero comics or is that just beneath you (laughs) (laughs) uh no that's not beneath me but uh i do appreciate superhero comics that do take uh different directions and i think um when you're talking about ambition and trying new things uh with the eternals um I'd, i'd like the same in uh, comics as well mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh i mean my first thought was i'd probably recommend that he read the neil gaiman eternals i i don't know if he'll run into the same problem where that we mentioned in the previous episode where you know there might be things that he needs to know or there might be a sense that a sense of unfulfillment because there are plot elements that don't get fully uh, resolved by the end of it. But I, I, I still think that's something worth checking out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd probably recommend, if, in terms of Eternals comics, I'd, I'd recommend the current run of Eternals by Kieran Gillen and Nisad Ribic. That's a, an easier starting point. It doesn't really require any knowledge of anything going on in the Marvel Universe. Whereas I think the game and stuff is... It, there's a couple slightly dated moments where there are references to Civil War, which was going on at the time. But with the current run of Eternals, it just starts off with the assumption that this is your first ever Eternals story. So you don't really need to know anything uh, beyond you know, the fact that you're reading a Marvel comic. Yeah, that's... That's a pretty, I think that's useful 
way a useful way to look at it so cool thanks for the recs all right everybody thanks for listening to between the gutters catch you next time peace out see ya